about crossing the line. Uh, some of my friends who what who, who maybe are still listening, some of my friends from Garden Valley Pipe Band, will recognize the melody. We know it as Bonaparte crossing the Rockies. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's funny. Tell, tell, so tell me about it. tell me about the tune itself. How'd you come across it? You know, you're playing it on Illum pipes. I don't know. Just just when you, when I mention this tune, what comes to mind? Yeah, well, it's a it's a cool tune. Um, it's funny. I, I expected you to say that it reminded that everybody knows it as Battle of Waterloo because that's how most Highland pipers know it as the Battle of Waterloo rather yeah, than yeah, absolutely. Bonaparte crossing the Rhine. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's a it's a cool tune. It was sort of a funny thing. Uh, the pipe band I was in in college, uh, First City Pipe Band, like it was all a bunch of people that had learned from the same guy. Um, who was a, a piper at a, a pretty good pipe band uh, kind of here in, well, there in Minnesota, the uh, McAllister Pipe Band, which is attached to McAllister College. Um, and so he had kind of taught a bunch of people that were kind of older pipers, uh, like kind of started in their 40s. Uh, and so there wasn't like a great level of crispness or, you know, quality of play. It was like, mm-hmm. it was a parade band, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but one guy was sort of, I don't know, like, he was maybe the 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 worst of us feels weird, but he was definitely like the most eccentric of us. And also like it took him a really long time to get on the pipes and we just kind of didn't take him as seriously as maybe we should have. But and, he and, and to be he, fair, like saying the most eccentric of a group of pipers and drummers, <laughs> that's pretty darn yeah. eccentric, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Fair enough. Um, but he he just showed up with. He, he started playing a tune that nobody, none of us had like taught him, you know, like I was the only person in that band that uh, had learned someplace else and had learned as a kid. And, mm, yeah. um, but he just showed up to practice one night playing this tune like, what the hell is that tune? It's so good. And it was the yeah. Battle of Waterloo. And it's mm-hmm. such a, it's such a cracking, you know, good, good march. Um, and I started playing it a bunch because, you know, I, I spent a lot of time portraying a bagpiper uh, in the 18th century and kind of early 19th century who I think wound up playing at the Battle of Waterloo. Um, it's it's not hundred oh. percent sure, but so I was so aware I was of like, your reenactment stuff. I didn't. Re- I figured you were just like a piper to provide ambiance. I hadn't realized that at some you know at any point you had like you were impersonating like impersonating a specific historical figure. Yeah, well, it was sort of a. It was kind of funny. I I worked as a park ranger for a bunch of years at a site, and I always took you know my my entry into reenacting was through. Bag, like I was a bagpiper first and just my parents were my, my dad had already been scoping out how expensive kilts were and <laughs> yeah. we went to a reenactment just like a random carnival kind of thing and somebody had a kilt for sale for 40 bucks and he's like oh we're buying your kilt here right yeah. now um <laughs> but you know like a 40 dollar kilt at a reenactment made out of questionable acrylic um and like <laughs> box pleated isn't really the same thing as yeah. uh, most pipers wear these days so kind of before I knew anything about reenacting, I already had like a historic outfit and was mm-hmm. going around to things. And pretty quickly I became sort of like, oh, I shouldn't really be talking about Jacobite history in Wisconsin. Um, and <laughs> But anyway, I wound up getting a job as a park ranger and I, and I just sort of discredited or I didn't think about the bagpipe stuff at all. Like, oh, well, I'll play bagpipes here for ambiance, but there must not be much of a story here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, no, sure enough, the the fur trading company at this site I worked at hired a guy just to play bagpipes, uh, a guy named George Mackay, and we kind of lose track of George Mackay. Uh, he he got trapped. He well, so he he got hired just to play bagpipes, uh, supposedly. And then when they found out he could read, write, and do math, they made him run a fur post on the Red <laughs> River, uh, which is you know the border between Minnesota, Manitoba, and North Dakota. So not ideal kilt. Um, right, area. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he, he sort of disappears in the fur trade and then the next George Mackay 
bag piper we hear about is uh, a piper at Waterloo. And the pipes that were played at Waterloo actually survive today. You can go see them at the piping center. So the wow, pipes really? that play are kind of copies of, of those. And it's, you know, George Mackay isn't the, the least common name uh, in all of Scottish history. So you got a decent uh, chance it, it might be the same guy, huh? It might be the same guy. It, it, it could also, it's not quite John Smith level of right. like, oh, a lot of names like that, but it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's possible. Um, but anyway, so I, I would often like finish my bagpipe presentations with Battle of Waterloo and didn't really think much about the tune. Uh, and then just for the for my podcast of like kind of looking into the history of tunes and playing a bunch of different settings, um, I did an episode on Napoleonic history and bagpipe tunes and stuff and thought I'd look into Waterloo. And it's sort of cool. This this setting, Bonaparte Crossing the Rhine, I think is the oldest setting. Um, it's the oldest setting I could find anyway. Um, and so where you where you did it on your Illum pipes, does that like I have been curious about this with just about every recording I've heard from from your podcast is like to what degree are you maybe looking at the music and sort of taking some liberties, either to fit it to your instrument or just to fit your own style? And or to what degree are you like, No, I want to represent this as, you know, black and white accurate to what's on the paper yeah. as possible? Um, so generally if I'm playing a thing on Illum pipes, um, there's exceptions to this, but a lot of the things I'm playing on Illum pipes, I'm just using the Illum pipe to stand in for a fiddle. So there's right. a lot more music published for like um, German flute or for fiddle in the time period I'm interested in than there is for bagpipes. And so, um, so this, but this tune's kind of weird. It it almost certainly is older than this, but the oldest setting I could find, or at least the one I'm playing, is from Francis O'Neill, uh, who has this like massive collection of. Irish music. O'Neill's sort of a weird dude. He was a, I think, a police sergeant or some kind of a policeman in Chicago, um, but an Illin Piper and wound up collecting a bunch of tunes kind of amongst Irish immigrants in, in the United States and then mm. ultimately kind of going over to Ireland and trading tunes and collecting tunes and stuff too. But he's got these massive um, collections and has written some stuff on the history of Irish pipers and minstrels and things like that in Ireland. But so his setting, uh, it's not published until 1903. Um, but it, it almost certainly is older than that. But the tune, Battle of Waterloo, is a lot of times attributed to Wee Donald, so Donald MacLeod, um, kind of the famous bagpipe tune composer, mm -hmm. um, who's written so many awesome Highland pipe tunes in sort of the mid-20th century. Um, but supposedly, uh, Donald heard a fiddler playing Bonaparte Crossing the Rhine and made the adjustments to turn it into the Battle of Waterloo that we hear today. Mm. Um, but yeah, so when I was trying to figure out like what to put on the album, it was just, you know, what what, what recordings weren't the weren't terrible, like didn't have oh, errors yeah. and the sound popping and stuff like that. And also, yeah. I didn't hate how I sounded playing it. And I just came to the conclusion: as much as I love Battle of Waterloo, Bonaparte Crossing the Rhine is, uh, I think it's, I prefer that setting of it. It's a good, it's a good tune. I see. Now I want to unpack like so many things that you mentioned in there. Um, <laughs> And so, like, maybe this is an appropriate spot to give you just a minute to tell me um, about your podcast, which is the way that I personally found you. Um, yeah. Maybe even, yeah. did you start with the name? Because I have just, I haven't found, I've, I, I know I haven't exhausted your entire catalog of episodes. And so maybe you mention it in there, but I have not yet come to an episode where you explain yeah, no, Tell me about I, that. I don't, I don't. Or, or um, you know what, if you don't want to, if you'd rather oh, no, no, history, I'll explain it. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'll explain it. It's, it's sort of funny. Uh, so uh, I'm a little upset with you because <laughs> I just wound up going back and listening to old episodes of the podcast and uh, just 
having that full on, oh, I was a fool when I was 20. I thought I was better than this. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, I started the podcast when I was 20. So in 2006, um, and I think I was the only bagpipe podcast around, um, although maybe I just wasn't searching right, but it sure seemed like I was the only bagpipe podcast around after I'd been, I put out a couple episodes and then the National Piping Center put out a podcast, but it was a video podcast because that mm. was sort of where everybody thought this was going. Yeah. Um, and that was very short lived. I think they had two episodes. Um, and I just, I don't know, I, you know, podcasts were sort of brand new. I always joke that it was like just me and Skin Ninja. Right. Um, I have heard you mention that. That, yeah. was, <laughs> that was about it. Um, but I didn't, I had no idea for a title. I don't know what inspired me to think, you know, what I should do is, is make a podcast. Um, and, and so like I joked in the first episode, say oh yeah i guess it's gonna be way too drugs podcast of bagpipe power that's, that's a dumb right name. i'll yeah. come up with something better uh and, and then wasn't it like season I four didn't. so that you first were like oh, i guess i'll take the power thing off of it right because of the because of the unfortunate association some people made with white power right yeah well that's what i was always nervous about um yeah. and like so that was my having way too twig in there felt like a cure to that i think in my 20 year old head like so way too twig's my nickname in ojibwe language which is you know an indigenous language um in lake superior the great lakes area mm-hmm. um and i had i was going to college to study that so like i was taking classes in ojibwe language and wound up with this this nickname way too twig that a lot of people called me by and as like a white kid taking indigenous language classes when a bunch of native people start calling you something you're like heck yeah that's what i'm going to be known yeah, as yeah um, absolutely and i also liked it because it's it's stupid like it's um i'll, I'll jokingly say yeah way too talk it means like powerful brave warrior but it really means jello like jello pudding um <laughs> is what it translates to um and it idea. just yeah so it was, it's like so my thought you know, the reason that Way Too Twig's podcast of Big Pipe Power stuck around as a name for so long is that I was like, okay, well, you know, clearly white supremacists will know, especially those early episodes, I would just, I would talk in Ojibwe a fair right, amount. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, they'll know that, uh, they'll know that this isn't for white supremacy because I'm speaking indigenous language. Yeah. But, you know, that's absurd. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. Ojibwe is not, uh, as much as it's a, a language that was spoke over a pretty huge uh, chunk of the United States and Canada and the Algonquian language in general, like even farther spread, uh, or Algonquian languages, it's not a thing that people identify. And even like that first year back in 2006 or seven, I remember people like blogging about the show saying, Oh, my favorite parts are when you talk in Gaelic. I'm like, Oh, I, oh, I do not uh-oh. do that yeah, at all. So you were counting on other people uh, like doing research and things like that. Or yeah, like yeah, yeah, Google yeah, yeah. searches, for example. You know? <laughs> yeah. But um, even then you wouldn't be able to do it because I spell it just ever so slightly differently than it shows up in dictionaries. Uh, so, so there are, so there were some misconceptions going on there. Yeah. And like honestly so i i was struggling with like the name and um i've i don't know i've been frustrated with the i I don't because of being a park ranger i've had the i'm not a park ranger anymore but when i was a park ranger i had the luxury of you know being able to perform bagpipes sort of for a living Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. in a very controlled setting where I, i could be very clear about what the purpose of it was and how people were kind of supposed to interact with it um And it just, I got spoiled with that. And the number of times, the, the few gigs that I would play out for museums and stuff, like there's one gig on uh, Madeline Island and Lake Superior that I would do pretty regularly. And Madeline Island, it's a, it's a funny thing because it's a really important place for like Ojibwe history. But as like much of the history of indigenous people 
uh, in the Americas, Madeline Island was sort of cleared out of native people and it became, um, like first it was a fishing camp for white folks, then a tourist destination. And now it's still a tourist destination, but there's a lot of weird, like open liquor laws. So you can just walk around the whole island with um, open bottle in hand. open canvas. Yeah, and it kind of attracts this weird mixture of kind of hippies and and just ultra <laughs> ultra problematic people, I guess. Yeah, like, yeah. and so I'd be playing there, and somebody would got by, and I always have this thing of like, oh, I think. I think I know what those patches are like on uh, your, yeah. on your stick, you know, on your scooter or on your coat. Right. And like just realizing that there's a, there's an association with uh, white supremacy and white power that bagpipes like kind of certainly attract people like yeah. that. It, it yeah. tend to. Um, and you know, there, there is a history of um, like, it's not like bagpipes themselves are, are to blame. Obviously it's people using it, but like yeah. the KKK uses bagpipes and amazing grace as, as like, part of i mean it's such a absurd connection like amazing grace is its own weird fraught history of yeah abolition yeah. like a weird abolition slave owning stuff but yeah. it's just weird that the clan uses it as like yeah yeah this is our tune like you know that that's written by a dude that like was a slave trader and was like oh i shouldn't do this anymore <laughs> like right. oh okay yeah. okay okay cool, 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 cool. yeah it's um, it, it, it is an unfortunate thing but i suspect that probably a lot of us if we're if we're looking for it anyway we probably have noticed uh an unfortunate Mm, tying together that happens in some people's heads where like you go to a Scottish festival and it's like, well, you know, you can be there for the right reasons, but then you can, you know, that there are some people there who maybe have like what I personally would say are morally not right reasons for getting excited about (laughs) some of this stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, so I was, um, but but is that, is that Island the one that has the, the church at which you did, I think it's your second to last tune on the album. No, no. St. Clement's Church uh, is in, uh, it's on the Isle of Harris. So oh, oh, oh. Uh, it's, uh, it's like the southernmost, it's really like the southern tip of, of the Isle of Harris. And it's where um, the McLeods kind of, McLeods of Dunvegan and of Harris kind of buried their chiefs and stuff like that. Mm. I just, I really like the, the, what is, what is the, what's the word for the audio style or the audio feel there? Is it ambience? There's like a, some really good ambience in that recording. Like yeah, you can hear I think that so. it's a big space, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really not it's not a particularly big church, but it's um, but there's nothing in it and it's stone, mm. <laughs> so it really I guess it's pretty big. There's like little um, there's some little um, arms or whatever, like kind of rooms that kind of stick off to the side of the main kind of cathedral section where there's more people um, buried and things. It's, it's a really, it's a really amazing space. Mm. We were, uh, we were there on a Sunday, which, you know, famously, you know, if you're going to the outer Hebrides, you kind of have to be careful about traveling on on Sunday because everything's closed. Mm. Um, but the church is like a historic site, um, without interpreters there. Um, so it was unlocked. Like we kind of, we drove all over the Island, uh, cause we wanted to go see some rocks and standing stones, which, you know, didn't, didn't close obviously. And then, uh, and yeah, I just kind of randomly drove down to St. Clement's Church thinking there's no way this will be open. And it was open and we were the only ones there. Mm. Uh, and kind of the whole day we had been dodging big tour buses filled with um, people walking around the stones of Colinish and Brocks and stuff like that. So it was, it was a really nice treat to have St. Clement's Church all to ourselves for, I think, about 40 minutes. So I recorded a couple tunes there. But. Oh, so it was, it was impromptu, huh? That recording, huh? Yeah, I mean, it was impromptu, and it was, I mean, it's an improvised playing, too. That's like, right, that's right. Yeah, it was sort of, like, I don't know, like, the, 
we didn't go to Sky this last trip, but um, but I did the whole bagpipe tourist thing of like, well, we gotta go find Boreg and go to Dunvegan mm-hmm. on Sky and kind of think about the McCrimmons and and so I I had been thinking that like, oh man, I bet McCrimmons played in this in this church, you know, for um, people that were buried and you know for services and ceremonies and things like that, yeah. which I'm actually not sure about. Like the timeline of it's so funny that church is built, um, I think, less than a hundred years before. Um, the Reformation or like before kind of Protestantism comes to Scotland in a huge way. Um, and so it wasn't used for terribly long and kind of had a, it was in various stages of ruin, but it was still a great place to record. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just wanted to, wanted to go in there and play some tunes and try to, try to feel some connection, you know, to, but really just anywhere just sounds cool yeah, <laughs> over there. Yeah, it's such sure. a great instrument for that. But. Well, I don't, I don't mean to sidetrack you too much. I, I feel like you've got a wealth of, of stories and information. So I just want to dive down every, every little alleyway, but let me, yeah. let, let me allow you to reel it back and talk some more about the podcast. Cause I, I oh, yeah, pretty yeah. sure you are the first bagpiping podcast chronologically. Yeah, I think, sure. I think so too. And it, it's sort of weird. Um, listening back to that first episode of like at no point in there do i explain why i'm doing this like maybe um, I, I i wondered i was like maybe he explains it in ojibwe maybe i just don't know because I, it wasn't in english <laughs> no i don't think so uh it's just i mean at that point I, I just posted on my my facebook feed about for the podcast saying like oof there's nothing that makes me want to quit doing this more than listening to myself from 2006. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know what, what inspired me to do it. I was a 20 year old dude uh, that liked playing bagpipes. And I think I was enjoying playing around with that medium. Uh, I know it kind of it came and went and fits and starts. I wound up taking a class uh, in blogs and wikis or something for my undergrad where I got to like the, the key to college is to find ways to uh, get credit for things you're already doing. Uh, that yeah, was like totally. the key to me. Um, and so I was able to do the podcast for like class credit for a while. And, um, and it, it just kind of came and went. And then when I started dating my wife who lives in North Carolina or lived in North Carolina, I would spend a lot of winters down there kind of away from my friends in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And the podcast became a way for me to like keep in touch with them. I, I oh think. yeah. Um, yeah. That makes sense. So like the next couple iterations of the podcast were that, but it was still just me. Like at no point in the podcast run, was it anything other than me talking about tunes and playing those tunes and generally not even talking about them in a meaningful way. <laughs> like just like, Oh, I guess I'm going to play these tunes. I don't even remember what they're called. Um, <laughs> was that partly and, because there was also a whiskey tasting element? Did, did that drive yes, some of the clear was, details from mine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also, I just wasn't, I, I wasn't, in my head, there was this disconnect between history and bagpiping. Yeah, like yeah. for me, history was about like indigenous history and that was something to be taken seriously and piping was my hobby. And yeah. um, and then when I got more serious into like historical piping, I wasn't really doing the podcast anymore. And so this new iteration, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the podcast now. Um, like I it's, think you it should seems, be, man. It's great. Yeah, it, it feels like, I always say like, this is the podcast I wish existed when I was starting to like play historic uh, or thinking about historic bagpiping yeah. just because it was so challenging once I started doing historic bagpipe programs to find tunes that we knew for sure were from the 1780s or 70s that weren't P-Rock. Um, and so, yeah, I was just like kind of defeated at that and wound up playing a lot of Donald McDonald tunes, which were published in 1828 um, or 1838 too. And like, those are good, those are good tunes. Um, and, and, hindsight now after doing the podcast for a year with this more focused historical uh, bent i know that most of the tunes i was playing out of that collection 
did date back to the time period I was talking about, which was the 1790s. But yeah. it's, it's just been really interesting now that everything has gone, so many resources are digital. Like you can look at everything in John Glenn's collection, tune book wise, uh, on the National Library of Scotland. So there's just this, it's just, archives are great. You can really like stand on the backs of people that have done all this work beforehand. Mm. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's, that's what's happened. So, so well, well, let me just during, tell you real quick, Jeremy, for me yeah. personally, and I suspect it's the same for a lot of your other listeners, that's, you are an inter, in, what's the word? Intercess, intercessory, intercessory, you're, you're an inter, a medium that stands between, oh, sure. like, like there's this big, I'm aware that there are these cool historical, like collections of tunes, right? Like yeah. Timothy Cummings references them in some of his, his, his collections of tunes, you know, stuff like that. Like yeah. I know they're out there. And I have on occasion, you know, hopped on Wikipedia to find like, you know, the old lyrics to some, some old folk song, you know, usually mm -hmm. more like Americana stuff in, in my case. But your podcast for me is like, oh, this, this guy is my curator, right? Like sure, this yeah. guy will go through all the work. So you, you mentioned standing on the shoulders of all these people who, who compiled these collections, right? Yeah. And I have thought to myself before, like, man, I'm sure glad that this guy took years of his life to travel around multiple countries and you know put to like write down what people were singing you know to get an idea of what these old tunes were but yeah. then there's there is a there's a lot of work to combing through that you know like so you're you know one is grateful that it's there but then to comb through it and find like oh this tune's nice this tune fits this tune works you know and oh and here's yeah. what it sounds like you know that's the job that for me I'm I'm kind of using you you know what I mean like well, that's like, great I mean you do hope, that right? for me and then I get yeah. to listen to you and go of these six tunes he just did, this is the one I'm going to learn today, you know? Yeah, and, uh, that's great. I mean, that's sort of the, that was sort of the, the hope, right? Like, uh, and especially probably around the 10th episode or so of the kind of new iteration of the podcast, I started posting links to all the, so yes, like it, yeah. and every single show, there's a link to an archival copy of the, of the tune I'm playing, unless it's like in a published collection that, I, that isn't online, mm -hmm. uh, which is the case with all these William Dixon tunes. And I keep on, after spending so much time reading music off a computer screen, I've recently bought like five books of music. Um, that I feel bad that I'm going to wind up being like, well, you have to buy this book. Don't feel bad. Good for the publishers. Um, yeah right well that's it too is uh yeah it's been it's been cool to like build these relationships with some of the people that have done that work like uh like, i don't know i appreciate that you say like i'm a curator um but it, it is i often like i started doing this work kind of haphazardly and then found out about traditional tune archive which is this amazing just amazing website where you can type in any tune just about and kind of Irish or Scottish or English collections and, mm -hmm. and American for that matter. And it'll, it'll, it's there in ABC notation as well as all the various places it's been published, mm. um, which is a great starting point. Um, but before all this stuff was done online, like people like Matt Seattle, who does a lot of um, kind of focuses, he, he's the one that published the William Dixon collection. Um, but also he's been doing that work of like finding concordances for years. Mm. Uh, and it's just, yeah, every time I, I play a tune that's in a Matt Dixon or a Matt Seattle book, I always feel like, oh, I'm cheating, cheating this <laughs> week because uh, all this work's done. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been it's it's just been it's been a blast to kind of look around and, and play at it. And I, um, yeah. <laughs> so so the podcast. Anyway, so so back to the podcast. Yeah, what the point yeah, of it is? Sorry, what it's I, called, I, I, keep, guess. I keep pulling um, you off track. Carry on. Yeah. Well, I'm like nearly going to. I, I think about a connection and then I run with it. But yeah. um, 
but yeah, even like I might have ditched the way too fog name in the reiteration of the podcast, but um, but also uh, whatever I like it, <laughs> so yeah. it's just gonna stick around. Yeah, but, um, but mostly I was uh, right? yeah, uh, I, I was asking a buddy of mine who had a D and D podcast about like what service he was using because I was sick of using. Like I, when I started podcasting, the free software for podcasting gave you a bunch of information, like where people are listening from and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and slowly but surely, as podcasting became more common and more people were doing it, that stuff all got moved behind paywalls. Yes, of course. Um, and right? like, yeah, like, no, <laughs> and, it costs us nothing to provide this information, but it's going to cost you ten bucks a month. Like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> and so I. Uh, and it was weird, like the the last run of the, the podcast, like season two and three, I was hitting the bandwidth limit every every month, like where I like my episodes would go down because I wasn't paying them enough to host it. Um, and I was like, well, okay, some, some of these do episodes again. do get kind of long when you have multiple tunes in there and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like most of them at this uh, point. And are th- like, that's not me complaining, man. I love that. Yeah. You know, give me more, you know. But I can yeah, it's 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 limit. rough. I've, I've tried to like. Uh, the podcast definitely started with like a ratio of me drunkenly rambling to tune. It was like 80% me drunkenly <laughs> rambling per tune. Um, and I have, I have dialed that back significantly, but still like at this point, like every episode is more than 10 tunes. Um, yeah. And like that takes some time to, to get through and to talk about, but um, yeah, I was, I was talking to this buddy of mine that had a D and D podcast about what service he was using and kind of he was really kind with his time and then next thing like before we had even finished talking about it he had like fireside who i use like if you pay at a certain level you get a second podcast kind of mm. built into it so he just like bought it he just like created the podcast and it was way too i'm like all right we're doing this i guess <laughs> we're just keeping that name around um but for me it was like uh you know in 2020 like 2019 i realized that because I'm in graduate school now, trying to get a PhD, and that's some pretty exhausting um, and depressing work. And hey, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and jerk you off the path one more time here. What yeah. uh, What are you studying? I'm just curious. We've mentioned school a couple of times. But... Yeah, indigenous history. So oh, you did mention like, that before. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's so my dissertations on um, kind of two spirit Ojibwe history, um, kind of looking at 18th and 19th century uh, gender and sexuality and, and that sort of stuff. There's this oh, person. Yeah, this this person that I'm writing. Uh, my did I lose you? Weird. Okay. I, I can screen you. You still hear me? Okay. My screen just all went black as oh, if okay. I hadn't done anything in too long a time. Um, anyway, this this person Ozawindib uh, is you know Ojibwe. Uh, she was kind of born like identified as male and like the son of this big tough Ojibwe chief. And then at some point she started living as a, a woman. And it's really interesting. Like there are like really different cultural concepts and things for Ojibwe gender and sexuality that don't what? translate particularly well. But what century was that? Uh, 1760, I think, is wow, around really? when she was born. Maybe 1740. It's oh. a hard, hard, hard thing to figure out exactly. I, um, I don't, I don't know as much as I, as much as I should. But is it? I've got this thing in my head. It is, is Ojibwe, um, and then and Chippewa are these the Anglified and Frenchified names for the same yep. group of people? Yeah, exactly. Okay, I was thinking. Yeah, so that. supposedly the the explanation that I've always really liked is that um, French people had a hard time with a that a sound like uh, and so rather than Ojibwe, it was Ojibwa. Uh-huh. And then if you say Ojibwa uh, uh-huh. faster and faster, Ojibwa Chippewa, Chippewa it winds up as Chippewa. But then when reservations like are established, and, uh, to Kaja, Cajun. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but when reservations were established, so are we. So the French come in, they're like, okay, 
Soto and Chippewa is what we call these people. The English came in, just copied the French. Then the Americans came in, and when reservations were established, that became like legal title. So ah, yeah. all of the Ojibwe reservations uh, in the United States were first called Chippewa, and many have kind of gone through the pain of legally changing name and title and stuff mm-hmm. to Ojibwe. But it's it's a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work for an so, individual, for a whole, for a whole uh, uh, nation. Yeah, for a whole community. Like you yeah. think about like all of the legal documents that, like like how much of the stuff in our daily life has the state we live in on it right. or the nation it's just yeah so it's a lot of a lot of work so not everybody has done that work mm. but so you're, um, so you're in grad school now you were saying and that's, that's yeah in grad word. school now and uh and realized that uh i wasn't playing bagpipes nearly as much as i used to and that playing music made me happy and like yeah i wanted to play bagpipes more so i decided like okay 2020 i'm just going to do this i'm going to play a tune every day thing and that'll cheer me up it'll make me happier i'll be more productive and all that jazz uh, and then COVID happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and it was it was really important to be playing a tune every day. And it turned out that, um, yeah. Then on St. Patrick's Day, I kind of missed that sense of community and thought, oh, what the heck? I'll just throw an episode up of the podcast and see if anybody's still listening. And like, got a couple hundred downloads right away. Like, oh, okay. This you, is did still, you notice that the world is starving for content? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I kind of everybody that started anything early in the pandemic. Uh, those are some untrue numbers uh, yeah. <laughs> long lasting, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it was, I don't know, like it was, it was terrible, but in a lot of ways, like those early weeks of the pandemic were like some of the best moment. Like I've, I've never thought better about like my neighbors or like mm-hmm. the country as a whole, like, man, it yeah. really feels like everybody's pulling together. Uh, it didn't take long for that to disintegrate, but it was great for a little bit of time there. Um, yeah. but yeah, so I started doing the podcast and, uh, and at first it was just like, oh, I'm recording these tunes every day anyway, so I can just plug them in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then quickly was like, well, I guess I could do a more, a more guided, like historic approach to music. And, and yeah, so that's what it is now is kind of picking. Sometimes I pick like two or three tunes and play, you know, anywhere from three other to five other variations of it that you see in different collections. I'm always really excited to find music that uh, kind of shows up in England or in the borders in Scotland and in Ireland. Like if I can mm-hmm. finding tunes that are in all those places is always uh, fun for me. Mm-hmm. But um, but lately it's it's a lot less work to just like oh here's a printed collection I didn't know existed. Um, like Fitzmaurice's collection of Irish music, who's a Irish piper in Edinburgh, I think, uh, and like moved there in the 1790s and published a book in like 1810 or so mm-hmm. but like playing through all these collections of tunes i didn't know existed yet but are now online um so it's been so that's what the podcast is now anyway is me playing through some collection of music that generally has ties to either the 18th or 19th century yeah well and, and let me just like and, oh by the way while we've been talking i've been scrolling back through uh big rab's uh full catalog of episodes oh, yeah. to see episode one went up in january of 2017 and as far as i know there was nothing before that other than you. So I, you are, yeah. I think you're the pod father of bagpiping podcasts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so weird that like all the other bagpiping podcasts are interview podcasts, you know, it's mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or just a host kind of talking. Yep. Um, and I, it, yeah, that's, that what sort of, that's what is interesting to me. Like it didn't, 
it, it occurred to me like, oh, this would be easy. I, I think that it would be easier if I was interviewing or talking to somebody. Oh, yes, than, definitely. Um, playing all these tunes. But that's that's why know. this show has this format, Jeremy, honestly. Like, <laughs> I thought to myself, I want to do this. You know, like a friend of mine, had, we had talked about doing something oh. like this, and then he'd passed away. And so part of it was like a oh, passion sorry. project. Like, hey, I'm going to oh, make this happen. Right. You know what I mean? But yeah. uh, But definitely, I was like, what is sustainable? Well, um, every other week, no, no, no faster than that. And if it's an interview show, then I only have to prepare a few questions and I can let someone else do the talking. And so <laughs> definitely the format you're doing is so much more labor intensive, not only because you're doing all the research and then divulging it to the listener, but it's also all this tune learning. I mean, yeah. that's one of the things that was blowing my mind right from the beginning. It's like, okay, maybe it's only one tune a day, but it's a tune a day. Yeah. You know, like, what's that like for you? Do, do you feel like you've increased in your ability to sight read or learn quickly by doing yeah. this? Holy cow. Yes. Uh, like if there's any, if, if anybody ever doubts the whole, um, I don't need to practice or practicing doesn't make me better or I don't know that I'll ever be better. Um, like, yeah, playing a tune every day. And it wasn't like I, I was posting a tune every day. So sometimes, especially before we moved to a house, when I was living in a studio apartment and <laughs> yeah. got closed uh, yeah. for COVID. Like at first I was able to go to the music building on campus and record mm-hmm. there, um, but that quickly went away um, during COVID. So so I would, I would go and find like a parking lot and record, you know, six or seven tunes or whatever to get me through the week. But, but still like having to play every day, like holding myself accountable to that. Uh, it really improved my playing, and I was sort of shocked to realize, um, yeah, I can I can sight read pretty well now. Yeah. Uh, I actually had a, I don't know if I was anxious about our, our talk or what, or listening to the old podcast, but I had an anxiety dream last night about agreeing to a performance um, where I thought I was going to be playing one piece, and then it turns out I was going to be playing one piece on bagpipes and another piece on tuba. I've never played on tuba. tuba. <laughs> I have no idea how to play a tuba. Um, but it, even in the dream, I was like, okay, I know what that note is. I'm going to guess that this is how I finger it. Yeah, and it came out okay? <laughs> no, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like I could play three of the notes pretty good, but whenever there was like a, an eighth note, it was obvious to everyone watching that I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but yeah, sight reading has become uh, just a breeze to me now, uh, yeah. which is not a thing... Like I learned how to read music. One of the things that I, I think is really great about kind of the Great Highland Bagpipe tradition is that, um, well, it's, it's great and bad at the same time, but it's I, I love that if you're gonna learn Highland Bagpipes, you learn how to read music, like that is part of it. That is a skill set that is important to this mm-hmm, process mm-hmm. Uh, for playing in bands anyway. Yeah. Um, and I you, you lose something there. Um, you, you definitely lose like a, a, a willingness to experiment and that kind of thing by having everything written, which is, I think why everybody goes uh, sort of loses their head when you're starting to learn Peabrook because it doesn't look anything yes, definitely. like it sounds. Um, whereas if you only learn things by ear, that's not a barrier. Um, and it's been really interesting, like all of these, some of like the world's most famous Illin pipers um, and even like people that play historic Illin piping tunes can't read music. It's like yeah. I was watching, a, I was watching a, a lecture from Ronan Brown, who's this really good Irish piper. Uh, and he has a set of, of pipes, or he was, I'm not sure if they're his or if he was just playing a set of pipes from the 18th century, but he was doing this presentation for Nepibra Illin where he was playing through a bunch of 18th century tunes on these 18th century pipes, but he doesn't read any sheet music. So he had to have like a research assistant or somebody like a friend oh. who would play the tunes that he thought sounded interesting. She would play them on fiddle and then he'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to learn that. Wow, um, really? And it's, it's like a real big, it's more important to learn by ear and you can pick up tunes fast. So it's definitely something I want to try is to, to learn by ear but um but yeah being able to sight read it's like 
a wind, like it's not a perfect transcription of how music was played in the 18th century to how people are recording it, but it's still, it's better than anything else we've got, uh, mm-hmm. kind of arguably. Um, and really, you know, my, my first instrument was Highland Pipes and uh, I just have, I've complained about this a bunch, but I just have no music theory background at all. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of my, my favorite, favorite anecdote or example of this is when I asked my bagpipe teacher, Ann Brown, who's really good, you know, really good piper, um, and really patient with me when I was nine and asking a bunch of questions and wearing a kilt to practice all the time. Um, but when I asked her what a treble, guy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But when I when I asked her what a treble clef was, she was just like, just ignore that. You never you don't have to need pay to attention know. to that. <laughs> You're a bagpiper. Did you did you ever encounter that thing where like uh, in bagpipe notation music, right? You you usually just say like C, right? You know, but right, then, right. then you find out yeah. it's actually C sharp, kinda, and it's like, oh, what are right. those what are those little hashtags at the beginning yeah. of that staff? <laughs> Yeah, we'll just ignore that. Just ignore that. Too. Yeah, you don't need yeah. that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I was always, you know, I, I understood everything. Every piece of music I looked at was interpreted through bagpipes. Even when I was like a percussionist in band trying to play the xylophone or something in high school, I would still think about things in terms of bagpipes. I mm. borrowed a guitar from somebody and like used sticky notes to to put where the bagpipe scale was on the, oh, on the frets so I could pick, pick tunes that way. Um, but then, you know, Ellen Pipes it's all different. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's one, you know, it starts way lower. <laughs> like yeah. my, yeah. my default had to like, Oh no, I've actually got to think about this musically rather than just that note represents this finger positioning. Um, and so that was sort of the biggest surprise when I realized that I could, I could sight read music that would fit on Ellen pipes. Um, mm. That was a really big moment for me. Uh, and that's sort of where, where it's at today, I guess. But yeah, now, and it's cool now. I've got this set of uh, a, a listener kind of lent me a set of border pipes that are, you know, pitched in A, and yeah. so I can play it with Ellen pipes. And uh, yeah, that's not a thing that I would have thought would have been possible to to just kind of play through the score in kind of standard Highland pipe fingering and all that jazz, and then pick up Ellen pipes and play the same music, but as written, not making those adjustments. You know, like mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. playing it uh, like our Highland pipes. That's uh, have a, a whole new level of respect for Jarlath Henderson, who was, you know, always playing with Ross Ansley on um, right. on border pipes. Like, oh, that's that's hard. Uh, yeah. I know that Jarlath is a good piper, but that is very hard. Oh, sorry. That's that. Well, that's when you start thinking like. It does does it not start to seem like well I mean you you've learned m- more than one language so I th- I think you can probably relate to that like being not a dissimilar process of like you have to like break your brain and kind of rebuild yeah. it in a way you know yeah 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 but after you've broken yeah. your brain enough times then it becomes an easier and easier process so then you know I I'd assume that after you had broken your brain to go from Highland pipes to I don't know whistle and or Illin pipes and guitar and all these other things then breaking your brain to go to border pipes like it becomes a more sort of pliable kind of process. Oh yeah, I mean border pipes are so. I mean, there. I was already playing border pipe tunes on Highland pipes. Yeah. Um, and then I get, because it's the same fingering. Um, it's just, it's just yeah, you get those naturals and sharps a little bit easier on, right. on a good set of border pipes. But um, I mean, it, it's sort of a bummer. Traditionally, really good border pipes, you know, could play up into the second octave a fair bit, like yeah. at least um, like another half step up or whatever. Um, like up to D, I think is pretty normal, like high D. And most people playing border pipes now are just Highland pipers looking for a slightly quieter instrument. Yep, um, that's yep. and so the instruments aren't really designed for that because um, you you've got a it's a different channer that you can overblow to get up there. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Highland piper just wanting to play a bunch of embellishments and stuff, if you squeeze too hard, it's going to jump the octave and you're going to be upset. Um, yeah. And so. 
you know, I love the instrument, but it's it's frustrating how like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm kind of blocked off from how this was supposed to, you know, like how this is, what this instrument is supposed to be capable of. Mm-hmm. But even in the 18th and 19th century, I get the sense that it's sort of the rare piper that would do those pinch notes and kind of go up to the, the second octave. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still part of me that's like, dang it, I really wish, yeah. <laughs> I, wish I could do that. Yeah. But, well, you know, get, there's still time. <laughs> yeah. You're still yeah. around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I, there's a. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you, you go on. Oh, I was just gonna say there's, um, you know, the the Banton order pipes I have, uh, you can you can pinch up to high B pretty easily, and Will Woodson made the read for it, um, and I was like, hey, so I'm I'm pinching up to high B, but I know sometimes there's different fingerings, so is there a way to get to like high C and high D? And uh, he was like, uh, that chanter is not designed to even go to high B, so no. <laughs> like, so you're oh, lucky okay. you're getting what you got. <laughs> yeah, sort of. But then, you know, it was weird looking at, you know, old older sources, 18th and 19th century, and realizing that Highland Pipers were doing that same thing of pinching up. Yes, um, I want to ask the, you about that. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, like, oh, you can pinch up the notes on a Highland Pipe chanter? I wonder. And I assumed it would be this nearly impossible thing, uh, and, and I was... Uh, a, a buddy on Facebook, Bob Cameron, was was talking about it. I was like, "How do you do this?" And he's like, "Yeah, just you know, bury your thumb in the the thumb hole, like kind of at an angle, and squeeze a little bit harder, uh, and then open up the B note." It's like, "Oh, wow! Sure enough, that is way easier than I expected." Uh, and I want to see what else I can do with this. And pretty quickly, playing this Harvey Channer from the '60s, I was able to get high B and high C like fairly reliably. The problem is like, it is definitely a show off thing because it's so easy to, for it to drop out. Mm. And then you're just kind of sitting there with a funky sounding low B. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's when it works, it's really cool. And I'm, I've played around with trying to do it like at speed with a, a jig or something. And it's like, no, nah, that's, that's mm. beyond me. But uh, for slow airs and stuff, you can really, you can really hold that, that high B and yeah. high C. I mean, something like old Lang Syne, right? Yeah, yeah. Which I'm gonna pull Old Lang especially around new year's you know right. but but you have to do that funky highland bagpipe thing where you kind of hop some ac- some octaves you yeah know? yeah we'll just drop down here nobody will notice it'll right nobody will notice it'll be fine <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and then yeah. Uh, or i'll just hang out on high a for a while until it comes back to where i can play it again you know yeah there's that that grip on high a does a lot of work i feel yeah like. it does like, i'll just sure. i'll just add a lot of grips here and people will understand what i'm doing i'll tell you what like honestly i have relied on that for like so many requests that come in for like funeral gigs you know where it's like will mm-hmm. you play this hymn or will you play this this old cowboy song or whatever it is you know it's like yeah. well let's see i can do it up to here and then i guess i'll hang out on a high a for seven eight nine counts and then i can come back in <laughs> yeah yeah 
so, yeah, so that I have I have tried that you you described that to me that um dig your thumb into it thing you know and I tried it a little bit on one of my on one of my Highland Chanters and I'm not having success with it did it take you a while to get it to work or like did you find any little tricks or anything because I'm jealous man I want that high B yeah um so one of the one of the things that helps is to do an alternate fingering for high A so your high A is just the back thumb open rather than um, like the whole thing um so if you do a high A fingering that way that might help a little bit uh and then uh it's just it's a lot of pressure like mm -hmm. and, and, and some chanters just can't do it so it's worth experimenting around with different chanters i assumed that my hardy chanter could do it because it was old and had sort of a softer read in it but then i put a mccallum chanter in with a you know a hard enough read and it could go up argue it was maybe easier oh, and the mccallum chanter was maybe from like 2005 or something so it was relatively recent um but yeah, I think just just go for it. Keep trying. And it also takes, I mean, you have to give it more pressure. So yeah. the way that most um, Highland Pipers have their drones set up, if they're set up properly, your drones will probably turn off when you yeah. squeeze up to it. Um, so you have to make some adjustments there. So they'll keep going. Yeah, so I, I think that's why people don't do it. I, you know, when I first started experimenting around with it, it was... I was posting on Reddit or something, and somebody's like, "Yeah, I, I've also wondered like why we aren't seeing, like it's sort of weird that Gordon Duncan never did it, or at least didn't like perform it around a bunch." Uh, yeah. I'm I'm surprised that like um, is it Lincoln Hilton mm -hmm. uh, yeah. from Australia? Like that sort yeah. of seems like the sort of thing. Like I, I really, you'd kind of you'd kind of think that these like mm -hmm. like the epitome of hotshot pipers might try this stuff out because yeah, <laughs> it would trick here and there yeah because i think the first time some big name does it people are going to lose their mind oh like, for sure what? that's yeah. not a thing um i mean that's what i felt like when i first got it like i had this sort of embarrassing uh facebook live video where i was because in the back of my head i had thought about it i had actually thought i, I wanted to get that border pipe sound before i i I knew border pipes are expensive. It was going to take a while for me to get one. Yeah. So I thought about making adjustments to a channel read in order to get up there. Um, and I just didn't even occur to me like, oh, no, you can just do it. <laughs> like, you just got to like, <laughs> Just with do your it. standard kit, just go for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, all right. Um, so, yeah, I have this Facebook Live video of me just like my face completely like, I don't believe it. Check this out. Um, we caught yeah, the, li the live reaction, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I have had, like, I've, I've wanted so badly to be able to, like, get a bet a more accurate accidental out of like cross fingering on my highland chanter and stuff like that and yeah. every once in a while i get the right the right read at the right you know yeah. point in its life that it does work but man it's yeah. so rare when it does work you know what i mean and yeah like it's such a yeah i know exactly what you mean like i have you ever the hardy channer not the hardy one uh whatever channer i was playing before the hardy one would do this thing where I think it was a nail wooden channer or a McCallum one, but the read I had in there, it would sometimes do it, but like it would, I could do the incidental on the way up, but not on the way down or oh, something. Interesting. <laughs> like it was just, and sometimes I'd be fingering the incidental and holding the note and then it would, it, it would come in mind. like after a couple <laughs> beats. It's like, all right, cool. I guess we're there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's really one of the nice things about inland pipes and border pipes is like, no, those notes are just always there. You yeah. don't have to, there's no wizardry to get the, the read quite right and the atmosphere quite right for it yeah. to work. But, but in a way, like these things that are hard and like not technically what it's designed to do, that sort of makes them all the better when it works. Like, oh, for sure. something, yeah. something has happened. It's not really good for like performing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, for your home practice, which, you know, that's mostly what I do at this point is play for myself. Um, well, I, I yes, think that there's but... something deep to that, that like there is some, there is something about like, the 
the in, the inherent limitedness of the instrument. Yeah. That like, therefore you gotta work for variety, and that's what part yeah. that's part of what makes variety or originality so satisfying. And in a similar way, it's like. You know, my wife often laughs about how long we spend tuning our instruments, you know, especially like at a band competition, like the right. whole day is tuning, everybody's tuning, you know, you don't really, <laughs> sure. the competition is tuning, you know, like that's what it comes down to in so many ways, you know, like how'd you do in your tuning circle? Not so much when you actually played. <laughs> sure. And, uh, and it's like, I understand that absolutely. And that's part of what makes it so satisfying to hear a set of pipes or even a band that is just bang on in tune. Yeah. It's like such an elusive goal that when you do capture it, it's like magic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling with, um, I don't know. I, I'm keep on debating whether I, I should need to get another set of Highland pipes. And, mm. uh, I kind of am thinking about getting a B flat channer too. Cause this, the, the reed that I got with the Hardy channer was perfect, but it was a vintage reed too. Like it wasn't from mm. the sixties, but it was, a reed maker that isn't making reeds anymore, but it really worked well with this channer. And like now I've got a shepherd B flat reed in it and it works, but it also is wildly easy to underblow. Mm -hmm. And I just won't even realize like, you know, well, I mean, everybody has been in that mode where you're playing and you think everything's fine. And then you hit high A and realize, Oh, I'm nowhere near up to pressure. <laughs> yeah, It's not fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like, and that's where I'm at right now with it. It's like, Oh, this is frustrating. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's just hard when you know, like it, it's such a limiting instrument, <laughs> like it's such yeah. a, so many moving parts to, to worry about. Um, I mean that, that relationship of read to chanter, is, is so hard it was for illin pipes like when i made the jump to illin pipes to me it was like oh this is so liberating you know two whole octaves and you know you can tongue the notes and all these cool features and it was interesting talking to um people that like illin pipes is their second instrument but they mm -hmm. played something else before that was chromatic like yeah i was like yeah you can do anything with illin pipes and they're like no, you can't what are you talking about <laughs> this is ridiculously restrictive this instrument like right. oh man not compared to island yeah pipes. we're coming from different worlds man <laughs> yeah <laughs> So now, and speaking of hopping to Illum Pipes, um, I wanted to take a quick listen to Oyster Wives Rant, which is the title track for your album. this album is a collection of those tuna day tunes right like sort of you pulled from those right yeah it's it's pulled from um all of them are tunes that i played on the podcast uh and so it's sort of revealing too about what the um <laughs> what the challenge is with the podcast because it's it's absurdly long right there's 37 tracks my first like pass through of because like i said very quickly the podcast turned into about 10 different tunes a week yeah um and so picking through you know over like 30 or 40 episodes trying to find the ones i liked i was like okay we got to get it down from 70 obviously yeah i remember um, those episodes where you're talking about like okay i thought i had a curated list but it's uh 70 tunes so maybe i'll trim it yeah. down even further <laughs> yeah yeah um but like it's 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 not a, a long album it's actually like a pretty normal length album because most of these tunes are not sets they're just standalone tunes 
Um, so like Oyster Wives rant is thirty seconds long. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just me playing through it. Um, and if it's the first the first track on it, that was what I used for the the intro for mm-hmm. the podcast for you know like the second half of that season. And uh, yeah. And we get to hear in here you playing whistles and Dylan pipes. So yeah. if you started on Highland Pipes, I'm curious, where'd you go from there? Because a, a lot of pipers do pick up a bass whistle. I've got one here. Yeah. Like, a lot of pipers pick yeah. this up. And when So did you go Highland Pipes, Illum Pipes, whistle, or was the whistle in the middle? And also, do you think in D when you're playing the whistle, or G, or are you, or are you thinking in Highland Pipe terms? I'm just curious, for my own sake, because... Uh- yeah, at this point, I'm thinking in D. I yeah. should be thinking in G or A or whatever, but I my brain can't handle. I still can't you, handle. You made keys. one hop. Let's not make another yeah. hop. Right? <laughs> yeah, I keep thinking like I should just take a music theory class to try to understand this stuff a little bit more. But um, when I was in that boat, it was always like like I'm not a morning person, and like those music theory college classes are always like super early in the morning yeah. <laughs> like uh, i guess yeah. i'm just gonna keep on struggling here um <laughs> but yeah when i when i'm playing whistle i definitely think of it as an illin pipe um like so kind of think of a thing in the key of d or not in the key of d but mm-hmm. pitched in d yeah um but yeah I, I started with island pipes and you know i was a kid and i think i started when i was like nine or eight and where, where, where were, give me a little bit of your bio too here. This is, yeah. was it Wisconsin or Minnesota or what? Yeah, it was Wisconsin. Right? Um, yeah, I was born kind of in the suburbs of Milwaukee and family moved to Kansas for a little bit. And, uh, yeah, when we moved back to, to, to Milwaukee area, um, like my mom, in order to get us, my brother kind of fell in with a bad crowd in, in Wichita where we lived. And, um, my mom was way more diplomatic than I think a lot of parents would be. And so she was like bribing us to, to be willing to leave. Um, oh. <laughs> and so like, she's like, anything you want, if we can move back to Wisconsin. Um, and my brother running ferrets. Uh, so we got ferrets, which was cool. And then to be fair, like, I didn't care. I was seven when we left. Um, but to be fair, it's like, anything you want, Jeremy, like, what do you want if we go back to Wisconsin? And sort of out of the blue, I said, I want to play bagpipes. And uh, she said, oh, okay, statement, that's, huh? uh, I guess we'll do that. And I, I always say it, it's sort of like when you're a seven-year-old or a six-year-old, you're like, I want to be a fireman. And you don't yeah, really yeah. think about it yet. So I don't even know, like my dad had this cassette tape of, of bagpipes that I think I enjoyed. And like, I remember seeing a pipe band play in a parade before that point, but it was the drum that got me excited, not the bagpipes. So it's yeah. sort of, which one sort of weird. Was it, was it tenor drum or? Uh, it was the bass. It was hearing that bass come, you know, over the hill. That's what got me, uh, got me excited. But, but yeah, we moved back to Wisconsin, and then my mom and dad both were like looking for a place, and got me set up with lessons at the Billy Mitchell Scottish Pipes and Drums. And it was sort of, I, I kind of remember it where my dad said, "Well, we found you a place to teach you bagpipes," and I said, "Bag what?" Like it didn't, no, I didn't even remember. <laughs> yeah, but and, I, and kudos, I kudos to your parents for not only being willing to let a child learn the bagpipes in their home, which is one of the most excruciating experiences uh, for yeah. a person's ears, but also to buy their other child one of the stinkiest pets that you can possibly <laughs> yeah. own. Yeah. They really yeah. love you guys. <laughs> yeah, they they went through some. They went through it pretty bad. I mean, I so my memory. I remember asking for this. Um, you know, when I was a kid in Kansas, telling my mom. My dad's telling. So my parents were divorced, which is sort of why we wound up in Kansas. And mm-hmm. then I lived with my mom um, and my dad. When he tells, when he used to tell people about how I started learning bagpipes, he would say, "Well, he lives with his mother, so uh, I wanted to make sure to find a place where he could learn how to play bagpipes." <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I don't know that there's too much truth in that, but, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I started playing Highland Pipes and I, I kind of immediately didn't like, um, 
didn't like the band. <laughs> like, oh, and like... that's what I was wondering. So was it, were you learning from a band basically? So it was like yeah, straight into yeah. a band? Yeah. And I don't know what it's like out there, but um, the scene that I was like growing up in, it really felt like if you want to learn bagpipes, you learn from a band because they give you free lessons because they're always looking for pipers. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was, that was it. You know, Ann Brown was my teacher and she was uh, just very patient with me. Um, uh, at one point, I knew I wanted to be around the pipe band, but I thought I was so impatient to have pipes and I was just so sick mm. of being on practice channel. And like in hindsight, like it must've been like a month and a half when yeah, I was like, this yeah, is yeah. taking too long. Um, what, and what, how and old so, did you say were you seven, nine? I was, I was nine or 10. I think when I started, I think yeah. nine when I started lessons and, uh, and I like at one point I decided to quit bagpipes and become a percussionist. So I was like taking snare drum lessons and I was like, well, this is harder than I thought. And I went back to bagpipes <laughs> and like all this stuff they told us when we started, like, yeah, you know, it'll be at least a year before you get bagpipes. And I still wound up with bagpipes in a year, but it seemed like an eternity yeah. uh, to a, to a nine-year-old, um, Yes, yeah, so I was I was with the band, and then I, I did one gig. I played Irish Fest with the band once, um, and that was it. <laughs> I was like, I don't really like this. That was your uh, band and career, huh? That was my band career, and I did one. Uh, I, I was frustrated because I I didn't like being restricted to playing everything exactly as written, which is how a band is supposed to work, right? With all yeah. the grace notes and embellishments being the same, I didn't like that limiting factor. And I was already playing. I was playing stuff I shouldn't have been playing yet. Like I was. You know, um, I remember at that point, it was like the early 90s, and there's a couple guys playing, like Steam Train to Malag was really big, mm -hmm. like it had just come out. So, those guys so you were that. one of these kids who didn't know the common marches, but was secretly learning the Pumpkins Fancy or yeah. something like that. Right, Pumpkins Fancy, Clumsy Lover, it was all about the Clumsy yeah. Lover for yeah. me as Clumsy a kid. Clumsy Lover for sure, man. Yeah. You get that and, high A section, feels great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then and then awkwardly to Peabrock, but I had no idea I was playing Peabrock, but... Interesting. Uh, thus, um my favorite, my absolute favorite tune, a favorite song, like in, I remember in middle school, you're supposed to bring in, okay, everybody bring in their favorite song to share with the class. And I brought in Androck Beeg from Brother, this uh, kind of Celtic rock Bro, band from I'm, Australia. I love Brother. Um, <laughs> yeah. That makes me very, uh, that's great. That's great. Cool. But yeah, they're, they're setting up a little spree. I just loved it so much. Um, and I, and that was it. And so I learned it by ear and I would just play it. And I remember one of those guys that would play Steam Chain to Malag walked in on me practicing the little spree and he's like are you playing Peabrock? I'm like no Peabrock's dumb I hate it this is a band <laughs> called Brother <laughs> I just had no idea um but yeah every time the band would move on to playing you know their competition stuff like MSRs or more of the hornpipe jig stuff the pipe major would dismiss me like all right get out of here Jeremy you know we're, we're moving beyond you and that just mm. it chafed me so bad it's yeah. like I know this stuff I want to play this stuff um and so anyway I I kind of left the band uh and I went looking for a set of inland pipes because in my head inland pipes were more freeing you could do whatever you wanted with them and yeah i've, I got I've a heard set people of... describe it as like going from marching band to jazz yeah which is maybe not accurate i, I don't know it depends on what you do or who you're playing with and sure, that sort of yeah. thing. I, I definitely did this wrong um so like by the time i was 13 i think i had a, a practice set of inland pipes that mm. you know were old and I never had a lesson, didn't really know what I was doing. You move fast though, man. I feel like a lot of us Highland Pipers, it's like, you know, you're 12 or 13 years into your Highland Piping before you start thinking, those Illum Pipes look kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, so it was sort of funny. I, I had, 
I was kind of, I, I, I don't even know where I first heard Irish pipes, but I was like, oh, I like that. I want to do that. Yeah. Um, and I got them from a Highland Piper that had kind of done the same thing earlier, but had given up, as so many people do. Um, mm. Like, thankfully, he just bought a practice set before realizing this isn't a thing for him. He didn't go spend, uh, what, sixteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 on whatever it is for a full set. These Highland Pipers that just buy a full set of Allen pipes right away, like, oh, dude, that's yeah. going to hurt. It's going to hurt when you realize this is and everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I had that set. I could I could play the Kesh jig on it. And that was about it. And, love, I love um, that jig though. Great one to start yeah. with. Yeah, that's awesome. But it's the only tune like like there's only one second octave. There's like one or two second octave notes that are pretty mm-hmm. easy to hit, and I, I just didn't quite understand what I was doing. Um, and then like that instrument just sort of fell into disrepair, as you can imagine, when like a teenager owns an Ellen pipe and doesn't know what they're doing. Um, but I got it. It was super cheap for like it was. I could afford it with allowance money and kind of random stuff like i think i paid the guy like 200 dollars or something which is just mm-hmm. absurd i mean granted that, that was is the 90s. yeah man i'm jealous um, yeah um but yeah i wound up kind of being friends with a an illin pipe maker in um in minneapolis st paul area in minnesota i mean and, now wait, honestly like did, did it was the practice set right so it's like a it's a goose right like a bag with a chanter yeah. and then some yeah. some bellows right yep I mean, That's 200 it. bucks to buy you a set of bellows, right? So yeah, no, it's, it, it was, came out okay. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. And, and I don't know, like I, I encountered a lot of like being a kid really interested in like at that point I was doing the living history stuff and this guy was a reenactor. Mm. He had also been in that band and didn't get along with the pipe major. So he had kind of quit in frustration. So we had a lot of like kindred spirits, but also like he was probably in his late 30s or 40s. And mm. I was like, you know, 10 or 12 or whatever, and really interested in all of these things that I, I, I have just definitely encountered a lot of adults who are like, wow, you are very young to be interested in this stuff. I'm yeah. going to make sure that that is nurtured rather than yeah. limited. Um, so I'm really thankful for, for people like that. But um, so that, that might've been what's going on, mm-hmm. but he also got it super cheap. It was sort of weird. Um, the he's it's a Quistout practice set and Quistout is a, a Dutch maker, I think moved to England and is making again. But kind of took a hiatus for a while but like whoever bought it initially bought it at like a sam goody like at some random mute like instruments shop like mm-hmm. not a not from a specialist not from quest out but it was like part of the inventory at like a guitar and saxophone store yeah. um but they bought it whoever first bought it also paid next to nothing for it because it was like the 80s but huh. anyway yeah um wound up with uh with that and um, I knew I needed a better instrument from that if I was going to play it anymore. And my grandma, yeah, my grandma did this thing like grandparents uh, often do uh, where I was listening. She, she wound up stealing this album from me of Eric Riegler playing Ellen Pipes. And she just really liked it. I was like, Grandma, you know, if you buy me a new set of uh, bagpipes, I can play that stuff for you. I'll do it for and she live, did the Grandma. thing. All I need is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she did the thing that grandparents do, like, oh, when I die, you can you can do that. Like, oh, yeah. that is a yeah. ghoulish thing to say, Grandma. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but she she passed away, and I wound up inheriting enough money to buy a full set of villain pipes again before I really should have. Yeah. And kind of lucked out where, again, it was a friend. Um, who was sort of starting in his making career. So he's, he's a good pipe maker, but he didn't have as, they weren't as expensive as they probably could have been or should have been. Sure. Um, so, but again, wound up with a full set before I had any business having one. And I remember distinctly going to collect the pipes from him and, uh, God, I'm, I, oh, I guess I just didn't have a car then. But uh, I asked him if he could like show me how to play something. He's like, oh, I don't do that. 
<laughs> so I like asked for a lesson and he's like, no, I don't do that. Just uh, figure it out. It's <laughs> like, uh, okay. I'll make them. Uh, don't drive them. <laughs> right. And so I, I just, I kept on having inland pipes uh, and not like getting a lesson, um, which I don't recommend. Uh, it took a, <laughs> took a really long time to get there. The day. There are more efficient ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when I, when I got those, I started playing around more and my idea that inland pipes were more liberating than highland pipes were immediately dashed. Right. Yeah. Like I went to my first Irish session and, uh, was playing with a bunch of like fiddlers and whistle players and stuff. But like all of a sudden they were asking me to play inland pipe tunes. We're like, okay, play it like Seamus Ennis or like, no, you should play it like the soloist. I'm like, oh, so now not only do I not get to play it how I want, but I have to play it exactly like somebody else did, but there's no music. Great, 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 great. And, great, and great. also, you know, they're like, play it like Seamus Ennis. Oh, this uh, legend. Okay. It's, right. like, it's like showing up with a guitar and then being like, okay, yeah, but do it like Stevie Ray Vaughan, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just it'll be fine. It'll be just totally fine. Yeah, all right. Um, I, but again, like I got this, I got this set of Irish pipes thinking that it was not going to be a historical interest of mine and yeah. thinking that Irish pipes were some new thing. Uh, and then and then realized like, oh no, this instrument was actually having like a real big kind of finalization in this time period that I was portraying as a park ranger. So I should look at these historic collections of tunes and yeah. uh, quickly realized that O'Farrell, you know, whose pocket companions are sort of this really robust, cool collection of tunes. Um, like he published a set of tunes when he was piping in London for this this opera that I am 100% sure that these fur traders would go to when they were in London. Mm. So all of a sudden I was like, oh man, I've got like the bagpipers notes that played for the people that I'm portraying a different piper that played for them. Like I've got yeah. to learn this music. And that's the only way that I became the on piper I am today was just kind of fixating on Alfaro's collection and playing through stuff. And I needed to get better in order to play those tunes. So yeah but yeah I, it definitely took it took way longer <laughs> to be where i am and there's still things like i think last two weeks ago i figured out how to backstitch like which is not i mean it's not like rudimentary stuff but it's sort of rudimentary embellishments for inland piping and i've been playing for like nearly 20 years or something and like mm. didn't know how to do it because i'm just fumbling around in the woods that's uh, what it feels like kind of kind of finding your way yeah and so is the set you're playing right now uh, i'm trying to think back to the recordings if i would know i think i remember hearing you play some regulators so is it a it's a full full set just got everything it's a, in it? yeah it's a full set um the regulators have always been like because i got a set of ellen pipes with regulators and then didn't know how to play them and didn't play them for years mm -hmm. so they kind of fell into disrepair of the reeds and stuff um, and then I also realized that the Illin Piper I was listening to the most uh, kind of in those days was Jerry O'Sullivan because Jerry O'Sullivan has this album of feral tunes and Jerry O'Sullivan plays regulators quite a bit differently than most people because one of his regulators didn't work. Oh, um, so most Illin Pipers favor the regulators that are kind of closest to your body, the tenor and baritone. Yeah. Um, and then the bass one is like an add on that honestly, not a lot of pipers don't even bother with, but it adds this kind of bass thing. But Jerry O'Sullivan's the, the regulator closest to him never worked. So he always favored that bass regulator. So mm. that's how I started playing regulators was just always hitting those bass notes. Um, but yeah, so they were, they're always a little bit imbalanced with the chanter. Like they're just really honking loud and, uh, a couple months ago, I was able to get a new chanter, which is, um, it's a kind of Calder Quinn chanter. It's just amazing. It's like the best, it's just about the best Dylan pipe chanter you can get. I mean, it is. It's the best Dylan pipe chanter you can get. Um, maybe there'll, there'll be some people that will argue about that, but um, it's definitely one of like the best makers. And I kind of lucked into 
asking somebody at the right time and having it. And at this point, this channel is way softer. Yeah. Um, and the regulators are just all over the place. So as much as I was starting to get halfway decent at regulators with my uh, Bavaria channel, now, like, I just haven't played them in months again. Um, so I'm, like, kind of in that frustrating plateau moment of, like, I guess I need to start saving and getting on somebody's waiting list to to get a set of regulators that are more balanced with this channel yeah. or to like really sink all the time into learning how to read the thing myself so that I can have softer reads in it. But. Yeah. Have you ever delved into making your own reads for any of your pipes? No, not really. Like I, I read, um, like I live in Iowa now and Tim Britton lives not too far from me. He's kind of a big Ellen Piper and old pipe maker. Um, and has a book called like my method about, uh, read making. And after reading his book, um, I tried, I just like kind of played around with the fundamentals. I'm like, okay, I think I understand how this can work. And I, uh, I like took a chunk of cedar and some stuff. Um, <laughs> again, when I was a park ranger in the summer, I was working in a canoe warehouse where we build like birch bark canoes and other things. So we had a bunch of cedar around. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to take some of these shavings and see if I can't make something that will make a sound. Yeah. Um, and followed all the mechanics and finished it. I was like, well, this is stupid. It didn't work. Uh, this is a lot of work. Um, but like one of the most frustrating parts about reed making is like when a thing, it's sort of like if you make wine or beer, they say, don't throw it out. Cause it might just need a little bit more time. Mm. It's sort of like that with reeds. Like you kind of make it, you make it and then you have to let it sit for a day yeah. and then come back to it. And that was my experience. I came back to this weird reed I had made out of cedar. Um, and it didn't make a sound the day. And then two days later, I was back in the warehouse, picked it up and it squawked. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm never going to do this. This is too much. <laughs> like, cool, like, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was a good experience. But I kind of had this moment of, like in the early days of the pandemic, I had that like apocalypse fear. Like, yes. oh no, oh, yes, how, what am I going to do? I need to learn how to make reads so I can source this. Yep, like, I, I, oh man, I'm, I'm sure you and I are not the only ones who like, our first yeah. thought should have been food but one of the first thoughts was my reeds <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 and it's weird too like 18th century you know playing around and looking at um th there's correspondence that exists between some of the highland regiments um kind of writing back to scotland being like we need reeds really <laughs> so, I no yeah, yeah i don't i don't have the details of it uh i should i should track it down but uh, a buddy of mine uh, is, who was a piper back in the 60s and 70s and still is he's, he's still a good piper when he plays um, but he does, he does doing a bunch of research on the American Revolution or something. I think it was, it was either American Revolution or, or the French Indian War, but there was some Highland regiment that was writing back complaining about needing reeds to be That's shipped so over. That's so funny, man, because I have wondered about that before, more in the context of just thinking about World War One and just thinking, like, how do you, like, field maintain your pipes, you know? Like, Oof, what yeah. do you do to keep them just making sound, you know? Like, how do you pack extra reeds in, in a way that they're not going to get soaked when you cross a river or dried out when it's too hot out and stuff like that? I hadn't, I hadn't really taken the next step to think, what if there's like a reed trade, you know, like when the supply drop comes, there's a little box that yeah. says for the pipers, you know? Right. Right. I mean, it's like in military are, are constantly complaining about being under, <laughs> under resourced <laughs> anyway. Like you didn't send us gunpowder, lead, new uniforms Not or reeds. Reed. <laughs> yeah. Our piper has yeah. been squawking for three weeks now. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't know. Do you play cane reeds at all or no? I have one base cane reed from Adrian okay. Melvin that I play with, like as in mm -hmm. I mess around with it, but I'm not nearly consistent enough to like get it into the sweet spot and keep it there. Um, so yeah, well, I'm there's very, no keeping it there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was surprised. I, I did. I I wanted because I was spending so much time talking about historic um, bagpiping at the park I worked at, 
and people would want to know how it worked and i always felt self-conscious of like pulling out and here's this big fiberglass thing oh yeah um, yeah you gotta get one of those easy drone just... reads right so it like kind of looks like it could be wood <laughs> <laughs> yeah but then i started i started playing around with it was honestly after like meeting meeting with tim Britton and him kind of showing me how the read worked on my alien pipe drones I was like, oh, this is so much easier to understand mm. than like all of the bells and whistles and screws and knobs and rubber bands I've got to worry about on a synthetic, <laughs> yeah, on a synthetic drone. Um, and so I, I switched over to Kane for like a year, and it, it, they were so steady. Again, it's mostly just playing them a bunch, right? Yeah. Like if you if you can play consistently, they'll they'll work. But I guess you're up in some pretty high elevation. I'm not sure how much. That's uh, true. Added, <laughs> added hassle that becomes. I'll tell you what, we, we are really excited about this elevation chanter that uh, that McCallum's talking about. Or not McCallum, oh, sorry. Cool. Um, uh, 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 McClellan Bagpipes is coming out with. It's going to be good for us, for sure. But yeah, I've got, my buddy Swan plays on, on Cane Reads. And yeah, that's he talks about it all the time, about how, like, if you don't play every day, you know, you got to play them every day to keep them in that sweet spot. Yeah. I, in fact, I remember... I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, I don't know how to say her name. She's a small piper that's very popular right now. She did a... Breacher Campbell, yeah. Thank you for pronouncing the name so I didn't have to try. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I became aware of her like just from some YouTube clips the same year that she came out with that album, The Reeling, which, love that album. And yeah. and I remember watching a concert she'd done in, I think in Australia, um, where like I part of what drew me to her sound was definitely her drones. Like, such a unique sound. Like, I'm not sure how exactly to describe it, but very pleasant and seemed very unique really liked it a lot mm -hmm. and at some point during the show she pops her drones out and she's like this reed's giving me some trouble and it's all cane reeds and like yeah. and i was like oh of course like no wonder i shall never retain uh, never attain to this sort of sound yeah. because i do not have the strength of will to play cane reeds <laughs> you know yeah it's, it's just it's so much uh, it's so much less difficult than people think i think but also like she's playing bellows driven yes. pipes so yeah. Like, arguably, they're going to, I mean, that's why they're causing your trouble in Australia. Um, yeah, yeah. They're used to a, an ambient level of humidity. But, I mean, that's the nice the nice thing and the frustrating thing about Illin Pipes is, like, once the reed's in and working, like, you might have it for 30 years. But mm. um, when it breaks, it's really broken. Yeah. <laughs> and there's not a lot you can do about it. And every time that you want to, if you do have to make adjustments because of humidity or, or whatever um like kind of to make the adjustments there's some really basic adjustments like pulling it in and out but if you're going to actually touch the reed uh i've heard somebody say like yeah in order to get your inland pipe in tune you kind of have to be willing to break the reed to do it like Ooh. the like it's either gonna you're either gonna fix it and it's gonna work or you're gonna break it yeah. and uh and if you don't make adjustments like that it might be a problem but I, that could be wrong i've always because of that i've always erred on the side of i'm just never gonna touch it and when i'm out of tune people are gonna have to deal with it um, <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah Sorry, she's, she's great mind its own yeah she's yeah. excellent music i kind of love watching her play when she um like she just switches the tape uh between tunes depending on yeah. what key she's gonna play in it's yeah. like oh that is a thing I never thought. Why don't we all just do this? Like, yep, it's yep. Great. yep. After seeing her do exactly that, I was like, I'm just going to try that myself. And it was really fun. Like just for myself in my office, you know, but being able to go just yeah. from like a, a modal or minor kind of key to a major, like, oh, it worked really well. Awesome. I don't have to worry about this cross fingering stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, I, how long can I keep you, Jeremy? Am I pushing the limit already? No, I mean, dude, like the <laughs> doing a bagpipe podcast was uh, partially because I miss talking about bagpipes. So uh, at, at a certain point, I'm sure you're going to have to like cut a bunch of things out, but I'm, I'm good. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> well, I wanted, cause I, I, I still have a lot of stuff I want to ask you about. Um, and yeah. uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, in the nineties getting into the clumsy lover, 
And yeah. it's interesting to me that you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about the, uh, I think it was the Stool of Repentance. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so this tune, first, I want to know about the tune a little bit. And yeah. and because the, the reason it stood out to me is because like um, there is a part, there is a movement in this song, in this tune, that to me is like, did this tune inspire the clumsy lover? You know, like is sure. this, it, it feels, it also feels kind of Gordon Duncan-ish to me. Like, and yeah. maybe that's just that I'm hearing it through that lens, like a very, like a very modern piping listener, you know, yeah. then hearing this older tune goes, oh, it sounds like these modern things I've heard, you know? And so maybe, maybe there's a direct line between them or a tradition that connects them, or maybe it's just disparate things. And this is just a cool thing you can do on pipes. And it always has been. So people did it a long time ago and they do it today as well. But, but tell me about right. that tune. Yeah, so uh, so first I have to so some of, some of what you're hearing that that sounds like it is because I was I was improvising. Ah, so, some of um, it was you. <laughs> yeah, some of it was me, and that's definitely a piping tradition that I'm comfortable in. Um, yeah, but also feel bad about that. I'm all I'm all for that.
so one of the like when I first restarted the podcast, I guess it would be like technically season two. Um, I was trying to come up with uh, like kind of a more standardized. This is what each episode will be, and what I was doing then is I was playing through a Donald McDonald tune and a Neil Dickey tune, and generally singing something from the Scots Musical Museum from Robert Burns stuff. Mm. But it really started because um, you know, so like Neil Dickey came out that. Uh, kitchen piping book um, where, where clumsy lover is in and in the introduction he kind of talks about like how restrictive you know the piping scene was that you couldn't really play this kind of stuff uh, mm-hmm. my understanding was like yeah you have to play it in the kitchen because if anybody hears you you'll be, mm-hmm. you know you'll never win again yeah. um, and I was just kind of sh- sh- uh, surprised looking at all the tunes in Neil Dickey's collection and seeing how similar there were tunes from the Donald McDonald collections from 1828 mm-hmm. Um, and Donald McDonald is like the first published source for Highland piping that has like all the embellishments and stuff in there and does some small pipe, like um, small music, light music stuff, not just P-Rock. Um, um, so it's published in 1828. The cool thing about Donald McDonald too, though, is his first P-Rock collection, because he's sort of writing out music in a new way, uh, the first couple pages are dance music and he's saying these are the most popular dance tunes and so, like, the point was that everybody knows how to play these tunes. Mm-hmm. So if you know how to play The Reel of Tullock, then you can look at how I'm writing it and teach yourself how to read uh, and write music okay. this way. Yeah. Um, and so for me... It's like a Rosetta before... Stone for Pipers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And for me, before I realized, like, oh, there's all of these other collections that are maybe not Highland Piping, but you can tell there are Highland Pipe, like, placements on it and, and that sort of thing. It was yeah. Before I really knew about, it, like, William Dixon or about Robert Bremner or, or the... Uh, drum and castle manuscripts and all these things that are older um that was a really important source for me so anyway looking through donald mcdonald's tunes i was always surprised at how similar they were to neil dickey stuff and how like we think of kitchen piping as like a new um a new invention and and arguably it was like they're doing something new because that that tradition of dance music had basically died out um you know i mean people have done a lot of work to say like it was continual in cape breton and arguably like australia too had some like continuing tradition stuff but Mm -hmm. highland piping very much switched to kind of military marches peabrooks and and stuff like that rather than piping in the 18th century or earlier where like no you're the loudest instrument so you're the player for the dance you know like that's that's a good good source for that kind of thing um and so, so I would just always compare that. So there are, you do see those kind of high A disappearing note styles. You do see that in some older, older style of piping stuff. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting to me. So Stool of Repentance is a tune in the William Dixon manuscript, which is a collection of tunes from 1733. Um, and it was, people argue about this, but I'm, I'm very convinced by Matt Seattle's argument that uh, this is a collection of a border piper like a person from the borders that played uh, what we call a border pipe or a lowland pipe or northumbrian half long or whatever today um and like you can see that all the the tunes are all nine notes like they they all sit very well in highland pipes there's some people that argue that it's northumbrian small pipes but um i think i i, I buy the I, I buy that this is music for an open uh, open-fingered chanter mm. uh, anyway but there's there's <sighs> In the introduction to Matt's uh, publication on the William Dixon manuscript, he has a couple like notes and anecdotes about things, but they talk about how that high A seemed to be important uh, and kind of mean something to people listening to it and might have like a greater importance or uh, it was just something that people like really that stood out when Piper's had a good high A that mm-hmm. people were like, oh yeah, you got to listen to him because of this. 
Um, and I started thinking of that tune and like, okay, this high A, oh, there's some high A stuff in here. And I was thinking about, um, oh, what do you call it, descriptive pieces. So there's, there's several tunes, like Irish pipes are sort of known for like the fox hunter or in the 18th century, there's a tune Hair in the Corn or the Hens Concert, like all these tunes that sort of are performative Ellen Piper's impersonating things that you yeah. see. So the, the fox chase is easily the most famous of these where you hear the horns of the hunters, you hear the fox kind of crying as it's been, you know, eaten or, you know, killed by the, the dog or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking about descriptive pieces and looking at Stool of Repentance again. And, you know, the Stool of Repentance is this uh, kind of Calvinistic thing in Scotland and other places too, but where you, you get yelled at by the parson or whoever is in charge and they kind of sit you on this black stool and just harangue you in front of the congregation and i, I and love i love the title that's I, honestly yeah. before i heard you play it i was looking down the album tracks and this is the first tune i listened to because i was like that's a great title let's hear this one yeah and so i and like so many of the tunes in william dixon's collection our body is all good out like the titles are clearly going out of their way to be innuendos or, yeah. or not <laughs> even at all yeah um and so then this tune, The Stool of Repentance, and, you know, Robert Burns has written about, like, how there's this hypocrisy of that process, you know, where the parson is, you know, holier than thou yelling at you, even though everybody knows that they've done bad stuff, or yeah. just this act of public beratement is also, in its own way, kind of, like, um, sinful or something. Mm. Um, and so I was, I was playing that, and so I was playing it and thinking about that exchange, and so when I get to that part that seems the most animated... Like that is the moment where the parson is like really just screaming his his head oh, off okay, at yeah. the guy. That makes sense. Um, and then right after that part, it kind of slows way down and starts playing the variations again as written, but slower. Um, and then the in my thinking of this as a descriptive piece, like the guy's realizing like I don't care. <laughs> like the person that just got chewed out, like rather than feeling guilty about this, is like I am going to remove myself of of worrying about this, uh, and that's why it ends kind of. To me, the the ending then kind of seems chipper and happy because he's not worried about getting screamed at anymore yeah. uh, on the stool of repentance. But you know, I liked the tune already, but like <laughs> that that the music fits that story so perfectly that gives it another layer, another reason to yeah. like it. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's a good tune. It's a really good tune. Yeah, I keep on kind of wanting to. I don't know. It's it's one of the the frustrating things about doing so many tunes uh, every week is that like I don't keep any of them. Like mm, they are. Yeah. I learn them. I basically just sight read them and then move on to something else. And yeah, like imagining a world in which I'm doing a gig every once in a while again, rather than the podcast. It's like oh, I've got to really got to figure out some of these. Um, to, to like hold on, hold on to and, and make it part of your repertoire right yeah and that's sort of the nice thing about um like the album oyster wives rant is like yeah these are some of my favorite tunes um and i knew how to play them once <laughs> at least i know that yeah uh, kind of a weird uh, definitely uh, i just got back uh from a couple long road trips driving to north carolina and back a couple times for like family visits and weddings and um that's a really good stay awake thing is to have a recording of yourself playing a bunch of tunes you know yeah. um because you're just you know because then you're just playing your your driving your steering wheel like it's right, like right. it was way more stimulating than i thought like like better than listening to podcasts or, or music is like music that you know how to play or sing along kind to. of dust it's, them off uh, yeah well and it just like it's stimulating part of my brain to make me stay awake uh was, yeah. was really nice and th there has been research done that i'm sure a lot of 
musicians have paid attention to that suggests that sort of rehearsing in your mind without your instrument in your hands is nearly, if not just as effective in a lot of ways as practicing on your instrument. And so it, it does not, it doesn't not yield benefits in terms of transferring to actual play either. Or so the research might indicate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do that too though, right? Like you play your drive at your steering wheel. Ever? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I play the yeah. steering wheel. I play my wife's hand when we're holding hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it wasn't, it I, wasn't long before she'd start just asking me like, what tune are you playing, sweetie? You know? <laughs> like, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I had a brief, like not quite, but nearly relationship with a, another Piper. Uh, I, I've heard that that's a bad idea. I don't know, but you know, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. But uh, there's definitely part of me that was like, oh, that'd be kind of fun to like play <laughs> tunes on one another and see if you could right. uh, figure them out. Right, right. It was definitely one of the dumbest. One of the things I'm, I'm most proud. Like I knew it was cheesy when I was saying it, but yeah, yeah, we were yeah. we were exchanging tunes back and forth or something. Um, and she said, oh, that's a really good, it's a really good burl. You've got a really good burl there. And I was like, babe, if you like my burl, you should see my crumb Luna. It's just like, it's such a stupid, like, oh, there's so many dumb things you could say to one another. Oh, the, the, the opportunities to say them are so limited. Oh, well, yeah. you know what? That's, I've, I've been thinking all through this interview, Jeremy, about asking you, like, not putting pressure on you, but asking you if you've considered possibly putting together, a, like, a printable, like, publishable book, you know, of, like, yeah. favorite tunes with, like, blurbs, you know, little, little pieces of information about out the tunes and stuff like that throughout uh kind of like T yeah. timothy cummings has done some of those i love just like reading the books i don't even have to play them you know just going through and reading them but uh i now i'm thinking like maybe you should also publish a book of like piper specific pickup lines i think that's <laughs> a very small market but one that would yeah. very much appreciate it <laughs> yeah no I, I i'm really um i, I do want to publish uh, a collection of tunes but not at all like uh, me talking about them i i've been hoping to figure out a way to make a um, just to print a bunch of tunes in the style that they would have been printed in like the 18th century, um, just like as a, as a fake artifact or whatever. But mm -hmm. I just, after spending so much time looking at these old collections, I really want to have something. I mean, I'm always kind of imagining like, yeah, I'm going to do gigs again, where yeah. I'm generally talking about historic uh, tunes and it would be a fun thing to kind of sell. Um, yeah. You say fake also... artifacts. Are you thinking like, like, paper that would look period accurate and like typesetting that would look... yeah the typesetting is the main thing yeah. and um yeah the typesetting but that's sort of the rub is is trying to figure out how to make how to do it without it being obviously broken you know like yeah, to, yeah. to get the printing to look just imperfect enough without being over the top like you know burned edges i, I remember uh <laughs> right you got <laughs> the burnt edges thing yeah 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 i remember my uh, when i worked a, for the it's park a service. pirate's tune i see <laughs> <laughs> right right but I, I got i just got yelled at by this this other piper but this uh, cool guy who he was totally right but you know there's this aspect of performing historia um historicness or whatever so i was writing these scripts that we would do during our, our big rendezvous at the park i worked at and it was a bunch of reenactors that had no interest in like performance or acting or anything. And so I was like, well, if we're going to stay on message, y'all are going to need scripts. And so I printed them off and mm. like my boss was like, here, use this, this stuff. Or I was like, yeah, we're going to print it on yellow paper or whatever. So it looks yeah. like vellum or whatever. Yeah. And this guy's like, what the heck are you doing? That stuff only looks like that. Cause it's old. We are supposed to be showing 1797. Ah. That would be white paper. Quit it. Quit it with that. Don't mm. don't keep that myth going. He, I was took, like, oh. he took it another step further. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, you're right. Touche, sir. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. So that's that's my that's my vision. But I don't I don't know. I, I would I would about. love that now. I, and and I'm curious. Maybe you know because I don't know. But you know you're you're deep in the in this in this history. 
what did printed music look like at the time? Were there typesetters for staff music in the same way there were for, you know, the Gutenberg press, right? Where there would be letters or was it a lot of it handwritten? Like what, what was sheet music like? Yeah, it's definitely printed. Um, I, I don't know. I've never seen, they actually have, um, they have, I think they have some music um, um, blocks uh, on display at the Piping Center in Glasgow, mm. but it was not a thing I was interested in at the time, so I didn't pay terribly close attention. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely mass printed. Like the amount yeah. of um, the amount of printed music that was popular and, and showing up in the eighteenth and nineteenth century is is huge. Like it's way more. And even the seventeenth century, you start to see quite a lot of it. And um, there's like a couple big names in it. So like Robert Bremner uh, wound up printing a bunch of music, uh, I think in Edinburgh or Glasgow first, but eventually moved to to London. So a lot of the stuff that we use, like um, collection of Scots reels or country dances are all printed by him. Mm. Um, before him, there's John Walsh, who's like a London-based printer that's printing a bunch of English tunes. And then I think he got the deal for Hayden, so he's uh, publishing a bunch of Haydn music. Mm. Uh, Haydn or Handel? One of those two, I can never... What, one yeah, of them was not alive yet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and then before Walsh, there's like the Playford uh, who kind of published. Playford's manuscripts are sort of the best known, but again, like a London-based publisher. But they all kind of look, um, they all kind of look the same and they're, they're mass printed. Yeah. And I was, I was looking at a, a collection uh, from the National Library of Ireland of like an Irish Piper's family collection. It was really cool looking through and seeing this combination of where the piper had, was copying notes like tunes out that he had heard somebody play mm. or copying them out from other version um, from another book but then also this collection just also had like loose broadside stuffed in there mm. sort of like any bagpipers you know yeah, yeah any book which like, winds up like three ring binders yeah absolutely yeah yeah um but yeah there's there's clearly just a lot of this ephemera stuff kind of printed and i, I spent a lot of time looking at broadsides for like ballads certainly into robin hood ballads for a while mm. and so looking at all these old broadside sheets and I didn't, I just didn't realize like how much like the loose, like sheet music was also kind of sold in that same, same vein. And you see it in uh, advertisements for uh, like in the United States or yeah, in the United States or before then in the colonies too, uh, which was sort of neat. I was, uh, I kind of got on a big Robert Brunner kick uh, last fall and his brother. So Robert Brunner is this music printer and musician, uh, like I said, starting either in Edinburgh or Glasgow and wound up moving to London, but his brother, James Brunner, um, I think Robert certainly had, but James, uh, Robert might have, but James definitely was trained in Italy. Like this was sort of the norm. There were a couple music societies in uh, Edinburgh that would pay you to go to Italy to learn from us kind of thing. Mm, yeah. um, and so James Brunner did that, came back and kind of was looking for a better gig, I think, than what he was getting in Scotland. So uh, wound up moving to Philadelphia. Uh, but that's the oldest Scottish tutorial on guitar comes from Robert Bremner, but it was almost certainly written by James Bremner, but it's just kind of published by, by Bremner. But you look through, you look through like ads listing uh, kind of new stuff arrived in the stores and it includes like lists of music by, oh, we've got McGibbon stuff in here. We've got Bremner, we've got Oswald's um, of, of tunes you could buy in, in Philadelphia or, or any of these big port cities mm. um, in, in North America. So it's definitely something that people were starved for. It just we take for granted how easy and accessible music is now that like you yeah. kind of have to be working at avoiding it if you mm, don't want to hear music because yeah. it's just everywhere but you know before recorded music you're just sort of spending a lot of time listening to yourself hum uh and yeah. so when you actually hear a musician or see some music it's a really great great thing but. 
and this is the, everything that you're describing is also just like adding to this like sort of mind-blowing epiphany sh like like uh, paradigm shifting experience i've been having throughout this interview jeremy too that like the way you're talking about sheet music as like this technology that can like connect us so efficient yeah. so efficiently to the past you know um yeah I don't know what the equivalent would be like. I'm thinking maybe it's silly for me to draw the connection, especially for you as a as a historically minded person. You might think it's especially silly, but are, are you familiar with the book series, uh, The Last Kingdom? Um, um, I think so. Is that the Anglo-Saxon? Yeah, yep, yeah, that's right. And Netflix did a series based off of it and stuff like that. Yeah, there's just there's a there's a character in there who for whom literacy absolutely does not matter. And there's yeah. another character for whom literacy absolutely is the most important thing in the world. Yeah. And they have this conversation where one of them's like, that's stupid. Why would I do that when I can just go out and do this thing? I'll just do it, you know? And the yeah. other guy explains like, look, the, the written word is fascinating because it makes deeds and men immortal, right? Like yeah. this, is the, this is the vehicle by which we are transported into the future. And I don't know, like it, the written word is so yeah. ubiquitous and literacy is so ubiquitous for, especially for us in first world countries at present, like thinking just, it's like, it's like a fish not knowing that it's wet, right? I'm just starting to realize yeah. like what an amazing, we take it for yeah, like what a technology to have these yeah. pieces of sheet music that you've been going through and then playing that I get to hear. It's like my ears are traveling back in time. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, totally. And especially like, I mean, it's because instruments change in tonalities and mm -hmm. playing styles, but like I said, it's an imperfect thing, but it is, it's sort of the best we got. Yeah. But yeah, that, that idea of literacy being important, uh, I was just, the last couple, last couple of months or, or last bit of time here, I've been like helping out and participating in this Ojibwe language, um, like language table thing. Mm. And something, so Ojibwe is a verb-based language, uh, so it's really complicated. Um, and they don't have gendered pronouns like we're all, or gendered um, nouns where like things are male or female. Mm -hmm. But what they do break things down by is animate or inanimate is sort of how the language is organized. And lots of people always get frustrated. Uh, like it's a, it's a talking point amongst most language students uh, that book, Mosinaigan, is inanimate. And oh. they're like, oh, books should be animate because they mm. do they do so much. You know, they, they do all these things. They have to be animate. And it's like, well, no, you think about the first encounter with a book, like the person that made the word for Mazanayagan, like that book didn't do anything for them. Mm. Like it was like, like it was not a thing. It's, it's not a tool set that was uh, important or valuable because people couldn't read or write at the time. Yeah. And like for the longest time, like in, in Canada, there's been some really cool work done about this of kind of understanding treaties. But in the, in the United States and, you know, North America in general, like treaties are problematic because the, the written form of a treaty was one half of what that understanding was a lot of times. Yeah. The other half of that understanding was the person there talking about it and explaining what's important because that's how, that's how written things worked for lots of indigenous people where you'd have this object that represented an agreement or a story and then you'd have somebody telling what's important and what their commitments to are around that. And for the United States government or uh, British government, like they come in writing everything out in legalese and like they might to them, what we say doesn't matter nearly as much as what is written down mm -hmm. and our, and our name is committed to, uh, which was how it was super easy to be wildly disingenuous. Uh, so yeah. long as you got people to sign things and it was permanent because of the power of that, that written, written word in our legal system, which is a different topic than how great it is to look at 18th century music collections. Sure, but, sure. But, um, but it is interesting but, yeah. in how like also, and maybe I'm maybe I'm missing the point here, but like the idea from the colonist point of view that like 
because this document exists with this written word on it, the document is essentially immortal. It will yeah. live beyond yeah. the two people who are standing on either side of this table talking about the document. Whereas right. for a person for whom that written word isn't an immortal thing, it's a, it's a temporal agreement, potentially. Right. right. And like as a historian, like that's definitely, we're constantly doing that where you have to interpret these primary sources because they're written by somebody that had a wildly different culture and you know, the whole, the past is a foreign country idea. Right, like we've right. got to do some pretty serious work to understand what these things meant to them at the time. Or like, did they have the, like, when I'm asking uh, students to like analyze primary sources, one of the questions I always have is like, what information did the creator of the source not have mm. in order to make these claims? Like what, what didn't they know? <laughs> like what is revealing in this record that kind of shows like, oh yeah, they didn't know what they're talking about. They right, couldn't have known yeah. this thing that they're claiming. Um, yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, to, to sidetrack us too much. Let me see if I can get us back on track here. Sorry yeah, about that. Yeah. Uh, um, but let's, let's just hop into another tune. I'd like, uh, maybe you could tell me a little bit about, uh, Loch Ness. Is this one about a lock about the monster? Like what, uh, what's behind this? What's behind <laughs> yeah. this tune? Loch Ness is such a cool tune. Uh, it's, it's from Robert Bremner. So it's, it's good that we were just talking about him. Um, yeah, so Robert Bremner's collection from, I think, 1757 is probably the oldest setting of this as that name. Um, but recently, I've kind of realized, if you look on the album and listen to Loch Ness and then listen to Drummond Castle, they're the same tune. Oh. Like, they're uh, different different approaches, but it's like, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of similarities between those two things, and I didn't realize that at the time. Um, and then beyond that, so it's the Drummond Castle setting is from 1736, uh, this amazing kind of fiddler, dance master, named David Young, that has a couple of these uh, really beautiful tune books that have, have survived today. And you get a really a good sense of like what music sounded like, um, like dance music in the 1730s and 40s from it. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, Loch Ness and Drummond Castle are pretty similar. And then today, uh, or at least in the 20th century, this tune is probably best known as Cutting Bracken, which oh, is... Uh, it's, it seemed familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And again, I didn't. I, I was just playing around with um, trying to pay, play the bass line on Loch Ness. Uh, kind of, I was like, I'm going to use a low whistle because a lot of these older, like 18th century tune collections, will have like a bass clef line to like play as an accompaniment. And so I was like, yeah. well, I'm just going to look at Loch Ness again because I know there's a bass line in there, and I did it. And I was like, well, this is kind of boring. Um, I'm not sure that low whistle is the answer to this. And also, a low whistle doesn't quite have the reach I need it to to play most of the bass lines. Mm -hmm. um, but in playing through Loch Ness again, I was like, oh, that sort of sounds like Drummond Castle. Oh, that sort of sounds like Cutting Bracken. Mm. Um, so they're all kind of related, but it's a, yeah, it's a cracking good tune.
for for me the the Piper for like the fur traders, um, he was playing for Simon McTavish was technically like who his boss was, and Simon McTavish grew up um, like a mile or two. Uh, south of Loch Ness and some ways for the longest time I was always looking for tunes that were from that area or kind of said something like the title was about that place so that I could talk about it like if I was giving a presentation on historical tunes and why our piper was there on Lake Superior um, which is sort of why I was fascinated with it but yeah it's been I've had a, a recent epiphany like oh this tune is that's why I like it so much is yeah. it's all these other all these other tunes I love it when that happens. I don't know. Are, are you familiar with the book that uh, Fiona – oh, what's her last name? She does that radio show. She put it – it's called Wayfaring Strangers. Um, oh, yeah. That about, tune? Like, or that's, Atlantic. That's what... it, it, oh, yeah. I love the tune for sure. But yeah. she put together like – it's almost like a textbook about this like oh, transatlantic oh. movement of music from, from oh, uh, the British Isles oh. over into Appalachia and sort of this back-and-forth trade. Yeah. There's, no, an, there's an introduction so where Dolly Parton talks about sitting down with an Irish group to do some recordings and how like oh, one group would start playing a tune and the other group would go oh i know that tune it's this name yeah. and they're like no it's not it's this name but they're yeah. playing the same thing you know yeah yeah um, the campbells are coming uh is, yeah. it's a that's a tune that shows up in a lot of american um kind of old-timey old-timey music I, I remember when i first encountered a post on uh on um bob dunsire that i think it was aaron shaw of the wicked tinkers had put it up that just described all the different titles that the bride's jig had gone by. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Bung your eye and, and Lord, Lord Dunmar or some, some, some Lord's name, like just all these different names that, that yeah. I, I think that is fascinating when you, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what's, it's so cool. I mean, that's, I, I don't like ABC notation. I, I much prefer looking at like the actual original printed sources from 18th century, 19th century. Yeah. But the cool thing about ABC notation is there's so much of it you can search. Mm, <laughs> like you yeah. can just search those things. So I think, I don't know who is doing this kind of coding work, but I think that is how traditional tune archive has mm. grown to be so robust yeah, is sense. people doing that. Uh, but yeah, you type in any title and it's just great. They'll have like links to all the other, <laughs> all the other names that the tune has had uh, across different traditions or different published um, yeah, mm. examples of it. But. Awesome. Well, I also want to play Robin Powers Fancy. I really liked it. You've got, you've got whistle popping up a few times in this collection. And this was one of my favorites. Um, and I'm curious if you were to pitch to a Highland Piper, why they ought to pick up the the whistle? What would you say to them? Oh, that's interesting. Um, or would you? Would you even pitch it to them? Like, know. is it even it's, something people need to do? I've, I've, I'm struggling with this because um, I mean, whistle. Yes, everybody should play the whistle. It's so easy and good. Um, it's sort of a frustrating thing to me that in in Ireland, um, like in the United States, you learn you learn recorder as a kid, and recorder is a beautiful instrument. It's cool. I wish that I. Uh, had taken it more seriously and still know how to play it. I believe um, I you. Been... I can't. I can't help kind of go. Is it? <laughs> but that's <laughs> most of my exposure is like first grade recorder classes. Right. But like, if you listen to, like, I know maybe maybe in first grade they showed us the good stuff too. But if you listen to like, uh, like Renaissance recorder mm, groups sure. that are using more than just the recorder that everybody plays, it's it's really cool. But it's Those still kind of a tricky. Yeah, it's it's still kind of a tricky instrument, but in Ireland, rather than recorders, it's it's penny whistles. Yeah, it's like it's such an easy Great instrument idea. that has so much range, um, and it's like they're cheap. So <laughs> like, cheap. And um, way I mean, they're, they're than they recorder, can, right? 
I think so. Like it's a much more intuitive. Like yeah, the higher the open note goes, the higher <laughs> the higher the open hole goes, the higher the note goes. Yeah. Um, and in terms of being able to play with other people, if that's ever a thing that's important to you, um, it's just so much easier than bagpipes um, to play with other folks and to not be so stinking loud. Um, and it's just, and, and it's also like part of the tradition. Like um, Joseph McDonald's, like the first printed book uh, explaining how to play uh, Highland bagpipes and Peabrook specifically, he talks about whistles, like mm. that Highland pipers uh, are learning Peabrook's on whistles. And he's not talking penny whistles. They didn't exist yet. He's almost certainly talking about um, like bark whistles where you slip the bark off of a plant and, you know, kind of mm. do a DIY whistle until it breaks. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's definitely part of like the piping tradition that we've sort of just lost or ignored, um, and it seems like, oh, now I can go play at Irish Sessions or something, but it's it's such a good tune, or it's such a good instrument. It's a pain to record, um, mm, yeah. so if you're doing a lot of recording, just get ready to be frustrated with uh, getting the microphone placement correctly and not popping, but um, yeah, it's just, and it's less work, too, like, I don't know, I, I have a really crappy practice channel with a questionable read in it, so it takes... It's like more work to play my practice channel than to play bagpipes in terms of pressure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's just nice to like have a thing that's responsive and easy and everybody can play with. That's maybe um, not a bad idea. If any pipers need like more motivation to get their pipes out, just set your chanter up such that it's so difficult to play <laughs> your practice chanter that it's just easier to play your pipes. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm uh, all these folks with digital chanters now. Like I, I <laughs> back in my day. Yeah, well, I mean, even back in back in my day, they, we had them. Uh, just they were always they're just always so expensive. Yeah. It's like I'm not gonna spend a hundred dollars. I mean, especially as a kid playing when I really could have used like more practice time and space. Yeah. Um. I, there's there's so many things that I wish I bought kind of before I got married and started to think of like my life as an adult. My wife is like absurdly <laughs> yeah. supportive of bagpiping endeavors, like to a fault. Uh, yeah. Like she let me buy this twenty five hundred dollar channer and didn't even make me feel the slightest bit bad about it. But there's still things like I'm not spending that kind of money on a digital channel. (laughs) Yeah. I I definitely look back at my, like my teenage years, like when I had no responsibilities and I'm like, what I bought a lot of candy, pizza, and a long, like I could have really loaded up, you know, like I could have got a lot of equipment to last me the rest of my life. Yeah. Like if, like if I had waited to buy Illin pipes, until when I should have bought Illin pipes, I would never have them, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. like, it's good that I impulse. So as much as I'm like, Highland Piper should not start with full sets. Uh, it's like, well, you know, uh, there's something to be said for spending the money when you have it um, yeah. and aren't being as responsible as you might be Right, something to be said for just diving um, in and not thinking too hard, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I liked, and the other thing that's nice about it um, is whistles are a good change of pace. So like, that's why I've, I've got whistle tunes kind of dotted in throughout the album was just to sort of break up the mm-hmm. um, the monotony between Highland Pipes and Island Pipes or to kind of serve as a break. And Robin, Robin Powers Fancy is just a cool tune. This setting comes from O'Farrell's Pocket Companion. Um, I was trying to look up like any more information on it and I couldn't really find anything other than uh, it's cool to see Piper sort of copy one another. So uh, Fitzmaurice, who is, so remember, O'Farrell's an Irish piper in London. Fitzmaurice is an Irish piper in Scotland. Uh, I, again, I can't remember if it's Edinburgh or Glasgow. Mm. Um, but Fitzmaurice's book comes out shortly after O'Farrell's, and he has got Robin Powers' fancy in there, nearly note, I think it is note for note, uh, mm. the same. But um, Fitzmaurice, like, playing around for a lot of um, aristocracy and, like, wealthy people. And so... His name is sort of revealing of that different, um, just that different, um, what am I thinking here? 
The, uh, just sorry, just different people. Robin so, Power? Is that... Yeah, he's, he's yeah. playing for somebody that isn't Robin Power. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, yeah. this is uh, Miss Elphinstone's fancy is what uh, uh, Fitzmaurice yeah. has it as. Um, but I don't know. And then there's another setting called Raymond's Frolic from some other source from much later. But, um, but yeah, it's a good tune. It's a good yeah. tune for kind of breaking up the monotony of, of bagpipes. <laughs> me continuing to to throw questions at you what yeah no, okay. can you point to any specific thing that drew you to like we're talking a lot about the 18th century and early yeah. 19th century like what is there any specific thing that's drawn you to this time period musically and otherwise with your reenacting work and stuff like that as well yeah i mean i've, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because it's, it's sort of one of the most empowering things I've uh, ever heard from a historian that generally is not a particularly empowering person, she's sort of, she can sort of be mean, uh, has a reputation for being mean uh, and vindictive, so I'm not going to say her name. Um, but she one time said, um, we were talking about what I was interested in or what I was studying, and um, she said, well, you like what you like. You know, you can't really help what your focus is going to be. Like, that has to be what like the thing that you wind up being sort of obsessed over is what you've got to follow as a historian. Um, and like for me, it has turned into the 1790s and that's just the way of it. And it's, it, it kind of, it's a reverse engineering thing. It's cause you know, when I was 18, I started working as park ranger at a site that showed 1797 and uh, started just focusing really in hard on the late 18th century. And there's some really interesting things about that era um, for me, conveniently, it's a time period that not a ton of people care that much about. Um, conveniently as a historian, inconveniently as uh, having a pretty niche bagpipe podcast <laughs> like focuses in, um, on, on this time period that not a lot of people care about. But like as a kid, I was super into the Jacobite Rebellion, uh, didn't really do much serious research other than like um, buying the Osprey Men at Arms book of like for that war gamers buy to be able to yeah. paint costumes somewhat right, more accurately. Yeah. Um, and like, like that was interesting to me, uh, kind of fit in this kind of American idea of what Scotland's supposed to be in rebellion and all this kind of jazz. Mm -hmm. And, 
um, I think the more I became aware, like as a historian about how the world worked um, and just how connected everything was, the 1790s became really interesting because it is this kind of really, it's this transitional moment, I guess, between kind of industrial revolution and, um, you know, the clearances, like all, all these things that are happening in the 1790s make for a really messy uh, and interesting history. Uh, and then on top of that, you've got like a world war happening in, in Europe. Um, that's clearly affecting how you know, how things are how things are happening, um, but for print media and for music, it is like O'Farrell. God, everything just comes back to O'Farrell. Um, but like, you can see in his collection of tunes. Like, I think his first book maybe comes out in eighteen hundred, which is a Tudor, and then uh, within ten years or maybe fifteen years, the, the other books come out. But you see just how mixed up everything is. Um, and the more I study like earlier music collections, it's clear that things were pretty mixed up before then too, that there was quite a few musical influences, but, um, yeah, it's just such a, it's a cool, it's a cool sounding music to me. Um, like country dances from the 18th century sound really cool, um, and kind of Baroque music, uh, or Baroque, I guess, but it just, it all, I just, all, I like it. I like it all. <laughs> just a dumb yeah. answer, but like. Uh, I just like it all. I think the other thing I like about it is things are being mass produced, sort of, but not really yet. So there's still, like the late 18th century has a lot of handmade quality right alongside the first kind of mass produced things where everybody's going to have a similar blanket or a similar, mm. um, you know, accessories, but you still have a lot of space for homemade items. Um, so like the material culture is really interesting uh, to me, might be part of it too, but... Mm. But yeah, for, for doing indigenous history, the 1790s are nice because um, it was like this, in Lake Superior anyway, it was at the stage of relationships between indigenous people and colonizers where it isn't painfully obvious how bad it's going to go. Mm. Um, and the Ojibwe, like the folks that I mostly study and like the language I speak is all, like they were still very much in control of things uh, and pretty powerful because there was, you know, out there anyway, there were still... Um, there were different fur trading companies, different European powers, so you could kind of negotiate and play people off one another. It's also a really interesting time because of, you know, the expanding United States. Um, you start to see refugees, people that are like fleeing and relocating because of uh, the Northwest Territory Indian Wars, kind of in Ohio and Indiana, uh, where Ojibwe people and Ottawa people are kind of getting further and further west. And so it just it's a really interesting time for a lot of different people mixing together. Um, and for me, uh, any, any place, I always said Grand Portage was like the perfect place for me to work. Cause I got to talk about Ojibwe history, Scottish history for trade history and play bagpipes. And there's not a lot of places where those things perfectly right, yeah. uh, align. This and the, the Delta for you. Came yeah. Down. And like, I sort of felt that way too. And when I was doing my comprehensive exams for um, my, my PhD, which I'm still like I'm just a candidate, haven't written the book yet, but um, I, I was just kind of shocked uh, spending so much time in North Carolina uh, to visit my wife's family and stuff and just always had an interest in, uh, interest in kind of the history of slavery and enslavement and realizing that there was this, this history field where you could talk about indigenous history, kind of colonial American history and slavery and Scottish history. And it's like, that was a legitimate thing. It always felt like I had too many hobbies and mm. wasn't focusing on anything, but realizing that like the history of the Atlantic world was a thing where I could do all of that stuff. Um, but the 1790s are kind of an interesting time for that with 
um, like the Haiti slave revolts and or Haiti rebellion and that sort of thing too. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a cool time, but I think really any time period is interesting if you look at it long enough. Um, yeah, that's a fair point. But, yeah, no, that, it is really interesting, and it, and it, I mean, I've been curious about that anyway because like I'm I'm by no means a historian, but my my wife was a history major and has done some okay. research work and stuff like that, and she. Uh, oh, she'll she'll be upset with me that I don't remember exactly. She was doing women's history in a certain time period that I think was probably this, probably included the late 1700s. Be, partly yeah. because, of course, she loves Jane Austen, right? Like, oh, of, right. Of right. course, she does, right? Like, yeah. and so do I. And this is yeah. part of what I've really enjoyed about listening to some of your music. Some of these, in, in fact, it definitely comes up in this Duel of Repentance. I hear these movements, you know, in these like dancey tunes. Yeah. Maybe that's not strictly a dance tune, but it feels dancey to me that I kind right. of go, oh, like my wife and I go to these like Regency uh, gatherings. Well, when we can, when COVID isn't happening and stuff. Right. And th- so they'll play period accurate music, you know, and it's like I can hear it's like this. Oh, how, what am I trying to describe? Like up until recently, my experience with bagpipes has been very much against a backdrop of military regimental yep. style music. And aside from that, I was also being exposed to some of this sort of Regency era social dance music, you know, but on other yeah. instruments. And so your your podcast has provided this really cool way for me personally to go like, whoa, my worlds are colliding here. This is fun. Yeah. Yeah. You can do those things. They did those things, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. They just... I wind up playing out of a lot of country dance collections mm-hmm. and a lot of country dance collections you know, pull heavily from folk traditions of Scottish and Irish music yeah. and English music. Um, and so they wind up being pretty good. Um, now, yeah, I, I love that. I love that stuff. I love the sound of that. I've had this episode that has been like half recorded for a year, maybe at this point, um, yeah. about about Bath, because, you know, there, there's sort mm-hmm. of an interesting history of, of piping and pipers at Bath. And it's clear to me, um, I, I'm pretty sure that O'Farrell traveled to Bath and performed there. I know that other pipers did. It's sort of weird now uh, in the Bath Cathedral, there's um, part of it is decorated with um, like little angels playing bagpipes. Oh, I didn't but that's know that. like in the 20th century that's been added in there. Yeah. Um, and there was a instrument seller kind of right across the street from the cathedral that sold bagpipes that advertised as selling bagpipes. And I've been talking with, part of the reason it's, it's kind of taking forever is there's all these loose threads that I've kind of pulled at and forgotten about. And mm-hmm. I uh, haven't been sure how to talk about it, but um, the Duke of Argyll, um, when he went to Bath, he brought a bagpiper with him. Uh, so, like, that would be a big thing, like, to have this arrival. And I was just looking at like, newspaper... Like his personal piper, like, to, like, announce his I'm not, arrival? Yeah, I'm not sure like that. that the Duke of Argyll had a personal piper at that point. Uh, um, I guess he probably maybe, has Maybe he just hired one, though, to, like, you're yeah. going with me to Bath. <laughs> yeah, but Grab when I was... Spare reeds. <laughs> Right, right. But when I was looking around, I was just poking around at at newspaper um, kind of archives. And, you know, in in the Bath papers, a lot of times, because it's such a destination of people coming and uh, coming to Bath and that sort of thing. So they print like who's arrived. Mm. And I haven't I haven't heard back from Keith about it. Um, But it was there's a I was just kind of randomly searching for some paper and reading through it. And they have arriving the Duke of Argyle and also O'Farrell 
but they don't say O'Farrell the Piper. There's no ads right. about O'Farrell there to perform. Or you kind of wonder if like, oh, did the Duke of Argyle pay for O'Farrell to come up? Or was it just a coincidence? Was right. there another dude named O'Farrell? Could, could this have been um, early in O'Farrell's career? I guess you would know by when he... Yeah, it would have been, been kind of late uh, gotcha. later in his career. Well, after his books were published anyway. Yeah. O'Farrell is such a funny cat. Like he... Uh, I keep on meaning to do an episode about this too, but he advertised... Um, he advertised like his ability to play Irish pipes and to teach people how to do it. And like, you know, there's this famous story, I think it gets attributed to Seamus Ennis sometimes about it taking 21 years to learn how to play the Irish yes, pipes. Yes, I've heard that one, yeah. Um, and, or 21 years and seven generations or seven years, I don't remember all <laughs> of it, but, um, but there's this funny thing where O'Farrell was taking out ads saying that he could teach a gentleman how to play the Irish bagpipes in, uh, like three weeks like it, it kept yeah. on I, I don't have it quite in my head anymore but like the length 21 of time years, 21 yeah, years <laughs> yeah the length of time kept on getting shorter and shorter and shorter like <laughs> yeah. man he is confident and then finally one of them uh, one of the ads he says if you already play german flute uh, <laughs> like, oh, well yeah so you're just teaching bellows at this yeah point, insert but. some some fine print there yeah well, uh, but yeah, those, if, if those your bath tunes are so cool. If your when your bath episode comes comes together, I'm gonna make sure to make sure Judy Barker gets a link because I know she lived in Bath for a while. I bet she'd be interested. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's cool tunes. I mean, it, one of the things I'm I'm weirded out about it kind of has to do with women's history. Um, one of the tunes for that episode is uh, "Saw You a Woman of Fifteen Years," mm. which is a uh, uh, like on its own isn't particularly uh, scary sounding. But then when you like look up the ballad, like, oh, that's grotesque. Uh, oh, I don't really know how to talk about that. <laughs> when you find um, the lyrics that go with the title, it's like, oh, yeah, it's the worst thing I possibly could have imagined being attached yeah. to Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's like one of these weird moments of like, uh, like the this argument that people make that you can't judge people in the past based on today's standards. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a way that that argument is made that seems really disingenuous. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, or just not well thought out. Because, like, so many of the things that people say, oh, you, you can't judge them on that. You know, people at the time all felt that way. Like, people the way people at the time all felt that way so long as you continue to ignore the voices of the people that said, no, right. <laughs> that, that's not um, good. Um, but yeah, so, like, there's this, like, obviously there's a normalcy um, it, amongst, like, wealthy and powerful people to, you know, have relationships, like, even marrying teenage girls. Um, but it's just, it's like, oh, that seems like a thing I should know how to talk about more mm, um, yeah. before I actually do the episode, uh, because it does seem so tied into it. But the same idea of, like, uh, like, well, we can't judge slave owners, because that was what it was like for the time. Like, well, you know, enslaved people didn't want to be enslaved. Uh, and even so, then, believe and, it yeah, or not. Yeah, even then. And then, like, anytime you say that, they'll bring up, well, there is this one slave revolt where the uh, slave owner, like, the slaves wound up owning slaves. So, mm -hmm, you can't say that. Like, jeez, right. you really, you got that one example that breaks it all, I guess. Um, yeah. And the, the main thing, too, like, you hear people say that with Indian removal, like, mm -hmm. when, um, like, Trail of Tears and all that stuff. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, you can't judge them for that. That was the... The, that was just the way of it. Like literally the Supreme court said, you can't do this. It's wrong. And they mm -hmm. did it anyway. So like to say that everybody went along with the thing ignores, it just, it always winds up ignoring the voices of Quakers or the Supreme court in that case, or, yeah. you know, all Man, kinds don't, of people. That don't the Quakers like, like show up throughout history so often seeming to like have got things right. Like I'm often yep. surprised like, Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were, there was a voice of reason and there yeah. was a Quaker. Well, look at that. Yeah. Somebody did a good thing and it just happened to be a Quaker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and is it is that one of the complicating factors about like being passionate about at any time period that like you will find sort of messy, unseemly things, and it's like your passion makes you want 
to like it's like this complicated enthusiasm for the period mixed right. with the sort of repugnance of some things that people might have said or done at the time right like yeah the um going going to the past to find heroes is mm. uh um that's an exercise in ignoring some things like you're mm. you're gonna have to ignore some things and uh, makes it sort of a fraught enterprise like mm. it, i don't know that it's I don't know that you should like uh, there's been a meme going around lately that if you uh, are upset because if, if you're upset because you're studying history, uh, if you think studying history, you shouldn't be upset about things. You're not actually talking about history. Like that's, it's mm. the ideally, like if things are good, if, if we are at all succeeding, um, if we look to the past and see things that bother us, that probably means we're doing better. Like, mm, yeah, like we should, we should hope to, you know, progress towards a, a more fair and balanced society than than yeah. what things were when there were such extreme power dynamics that you could literally own people and their family. Like yeah. we we should hope to be moving beyond that. We, like, we, we should shouldn't. hope that that arc is is slowly bending toward justice, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it's 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 weird. <laughs> history's history's a weird thing, and it's like there was recently a study coming out about how historians are. Uh, uh, can tend to be traumatized by like the periods <laughs> they study. Funny. Yeah, like, yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I'm traumatized, but I'm certainly jaded. Like, oh yeah. Um, I don't know. It's and I and I feel bad about it. Like studying indigenous history, it's a, a long, it's a long dark history of, mm. uh, and and there again, it's bad to look to the past and see something good, but it's really hard to, like, compare indigenous history kind of prior to colonization to how things are going now and not see like, Ooh, that might've been nice. Um, <laughs> like yeah. maybe it, it does seem like it's better. Um, but you know, there was obviously problems with that too. I just always kind of wish could have seen, um, like where certain, because like indigenous folks are obviously around and that culture has continued to grow and change, um, because of colonization. I just kind of wish like, I'd love to see what, um, like what Ojibwe culture look like without colonization mm. at this point of like progressing and changing yeah. without this kind of genocidal influence right next mm. to it all the time. But yeah, definitely the, tangent. The, these, these fun alternative histories. I, I remember encountering one that I thought was interesting that uh, speculated what would the 20th century look like if, uh, if Germanic and, and Norse peoples had, had populated North America and the Aztec empire had thrived. True. It's just it's a fun not it's good. a fun thing to imagine, right? Yeah, <laughs> not good. <laughs> yep. not, yeah. It's not necessarily a better future than what we currently have, you know. And so, yeah. but it is interesting, um, and yeah. and that's that's an interesting aspect to the work you do, you know, that I hadn't really thought of before. Like, to what degree is it tempting to just sort of wish that you could just have the notes on the page and not have to think about the title or the context in some cases? Oh, I mean, the context is always the fun stuff, anyway. Mm -hmm. Like, as much as the reason that I've I haven't been sure how to talk about uh, saw you a girl of fifteen is not because I'm. Um, it's not because I wish I didn't have to talk about it because it's a really good tune. Mm -hmm. um, it's because like I want to I want to figure out how to talk about it, how people talk about it, and I'm still not sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and it's you know because because that that relationship. I mean, I think in the United States anyway. Like, it took a really long time for me to even hear hear the term femme cover, um, let alone like understand what it meant. That like, oh no, women are literally invisible in the law. Mm. Um, and like, don't have, didn't have any sort of rights, um, until like absurdly recently. Mm. Um, and 
so so yeah, it's it was normal for powerful men to marry fifteen year olds or to take advantage of fifteen year old girls or fourteen year old girls. So mm-hmm. I shouldn't be critiquing this this body ballad. And it's also a body ballad. Like it's a broadside of of guys just talking. You know, yeah. it's it's like a it's you know, it's the quintessential locker room chat except bathroom chat. Yeah. But it's yeah. still like still feels like a thing we should talk about. Um because yeah. it's so because by like continually ignoring that stuff and not talking about it, we're just pretending like we're not kind of still living in the consequences of it, uh, yeah. or the ramifications of it. And yeah, I guess that's, so that's where I'm at still is like, well, I was kind of bummed out because I went using like all the historian tools I knew of to like, I assumed somebody, some much smarter person than I would have written an article uh, talking about this, but I, I hadn't found it yet mm-hmm. to kind of have an idea of what to say. But Yeah, I, I my wife laughs at me increasingly often like i would like to think that i'm uh, an enlightened and uh, egalitarian person you know and yeah. that like i'm aware i'd like to yeah. think that but <laughs> it's it's discouraging how just how often no discouraging and also sometimes exhilarating just how often my paradigm shifts and i go yeah. oh i never saw that before and right. it's very often around things like uh you know basically the mistreatment of women and how lucky i how lucky i am you know and i'll yeah. i'll 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 come to my wife with these epiphanies and be like sweetie i just realized like <laughs> this piece of language or this bit of history you know like this is still having ramifications today or this would have been really hard and she just looks at me and goes yeah <laughs> you just yeah. figured this out yeah you know? <laughs> yeah it's so hard like those are important like having those epiphanies are something we should all aspire to. Uh, yeah. I hate, I feel, I feel bad in a way. Like I just, I, I left, I moved around quite a bit as a kid, but you know, still wound up in high school at the same place and just seeing all the people that like never left the town that they mm, yeah. went to school yeah. in and just don't have all those experiences. Like if you're not exposed to the idea that, Oh, there's a different way of looking at the world than your exact surroundings and point of view. Mm. It's really hard to have those epiphanies. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, especially the older you get, like there's this sense, it's like there's a sunk cost fallacy about your worldview. Like, mm. oh no, I have believed this thing for 20 years, even though I am staring at something that is uh, patently, like is obviously demonstrating that that's not accurate. I, yeah. I better I better hold on to the 20 years that I've got invested in this. And mm-hmm. yeah, the whole lifelong learning thing is, is good, but also hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I, I hope that you've, I hope that you can find a good way to talk about that tune because I'm, I'd love to hear it along with along with anything else you, you can produce. Um, now, now a lot of your music is looking at the past, but I did have a lot of fun listening to you try to do some John Coltrane on the Linux system <laughs> channel. So, like, yeah, what yeah. about what about stuff post nineteenth century? Like, are, do you have tune books you really like, or things that you're working on, or you know, stuff that draws you in? Yeah, it's so funny. Like I, I used to like I've got Gordon Duncan's the the books that the Gordon Duncan Trust put out. Yeah. Um, and just loved love love playing through that stuff. I do. I li- listening to Lincoln Hilton. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm an old man now. Um, my <laughs> fingers can't do that anymore. Lincoln um, Hilton, man, I love I love him so much. And in some ways, he's like, he's like, what what's the word for it? Like. He's like he's so handsome. He's and he's sure, young yeah. and he's got such great media quality and his fingers yeah. move so lightning fast and so yeah. clean. It's like a machine that has a heart, you know? And it's like I, I, I'm so so overboiling with like jealousy, you know? Yeah. Envy, but also admiration. So it's like a non like there's no like 
there's no anger, but like, I'm just trying to be honest. Like I've got a mixture of feelings going on every time yeah. I watch his stuff and I can't stop watching it, you know? Well, I, I remember maybe, maybe this is a joke and I'm still out of it, but I remember like in the aughts or something, somebody posted a joke about burrow oil, um, that, you know, all the best pipers were, it was like an April Fool's oil. joke. Yeah. That like, if you really want to be good, you've got to use this lubricant on your fingers. <laughs> I don't so you remember that, but fast. I liked the joke already. And it was, it was a joke. I think Lincoln sells it. Like, I think it is real. And no maybe way. it's an April Fool's joke that he, he did again. Um, I'm going to modern piping right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it might not be called burl oil, but like this idea of lubricating up your fingers to, to snap faster and all that stuff. Um, well, and the other but, thing, though, is that he's got the chops that honestly, right. if he took well, anything remember, that I previously thought wasn't a real thing and he said, no, I do this, I'd be like, okay, sign me up. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I remember when, when Mark Soule was first, it's sort of funny that these folks are all from um, like Australia, New Zealand and stuff. But yeah. um, but when Mark Soule first came out with like the Mixolydian and, you know, Helldown Train or Steam Train and Malay and all that stuff, there was a lot of old school pipers are like, that's not real. He's no, obviously yeah. editing it to yeah. speed it up because that's not a thing you can do. And like Mark Soule's stuff, I've got his books too. Like I could play all of that. I loved it. It was it was cool. The problem with it, and, and I think Lincoln's stuff too, is it's not particularly good as a solo thing. It's really yes. great for like having an ensemble of people playing. Right. Um, but he had he had one tune that I, I found the music for and I liked his play. I can't remember it was, but I looked at it and I started playing. I'm like, no, I just can't. I can't do that. Like I can't actually play that way. Um, My body doesn't I do that. Under, I don't uh, have yeah. that feature. Yeah, and I've and I've gotten a way. I've become a way better piper in the last year. Um, but it's also like a way better piper in the specific way. But there's this way that. Um, it's. I feel like my path has diverged. Um, mm -hmm. When I first started piping, I was. I wanted to play clumsy lover and all this stuff. And the perk of pipe bands where everybody's got to play the embellishments exactly the same way as you start to think of those embellishments like you can realize at speed how they become musical yeah. and certainly in like 18th and 19th century sources well 19th century sources you see that too but um but it's different it's at a different level now and even like looking at the two different versions of a tune that donald mcdonald printed like one in 1828 one in 1838 he's got different embellishments for it like it's it's understood like yeah you can do what you want uh sort of how i take it but by always being so consistent in doing it, the the chirping sound of that grace note becomes the embellishment in itself, right? And that's mm -hmm. not that's not a style of play that ever really interested me. And so it's not something that I've honed. And my fingers just rebel at it. Like, mm. oh, I've got to, in order for this tune to work, I think it was just, it was like you hold a B and just do a D grace note over and over and over and over and over and over yeah, and over again. Yeah. And I was like, no, can't do that. Uh, and it doesn't sound musical to me. Like it's, I, I think generally. That stuff too. Yeah, and I've, I think, I've tried to copy him. Like I can't do it. Like yeah, I, can't I think generally, I, I think there's this. Since getting this new Ellen Pipe Chanter, I have slowed way down uh, in my my playing. And I, there's always that stage of like when I'm young or had a hard read. Like when you have a hard read, you play fast. Like there's something that goes on in your brain. Like well, this is hard. I better get through it. Yeah. Um, that you have to unlearn. But like getting this. I didn't realize quite how much um, Reed's instruments kind of impacted how you play. And then getting this new channel that just sounds so amazing and is nice and soft to play, I just like really slowed way down in my playing. And I, I much prefer the music, uh, the musicality of it. Mm. But then there's this other, I feel like a lot of Lincoln stuff, like if you, it's the opposite, like you need to play it to speed mm -hmm. for it to sound right. Like um, it's a face melting guitar solo and it's impressive yeah. at its speed, but if it were slowed <laughs> right. down, it actually wouldn't be that impressive or, or wouldn't yeah. have the same charm or something. 
Yeah, but so I don't know. So so Lincoln stuff is beyond me. Um, it's a thing I enjoy to listen to every once in a while, but it's not a. a it, it quickly became clear, like I'm, I'm actually not interested in trying to play that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gordon Duncan stuff is also like technically challenging. But what I loved about Duncan stuff is like he did it differently. Like he, yeah. th- he's using. I mean, and he he learned so much like from that Irish repertoire and style of play of like, yeah, we're just all playing this tune together, but you kind of mm-hmm. do different things with it. Um, and it's kind of one of the things I love about you know looking at those tune books compared to because I'm not sure if Gordon did this with all of his albums, but in one of his albums, he like published all the tunes in the book uh, when you when you first bought. I think it was Press for Time, mm-hmm. and so you had all the sheet music for the tunes, and then compare it to how he actually recorded it. Like, oh yeah, there's um, there's really no similarities there, or there's similarities, but there's uh, a lot of differences. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So so modern modern piping tunes are cool. I, I feel less interested and awkwardly right now. My favorite new collection of tunes is uh, from this um, piper from um, the borders or from Northumberland or Northumbria named Ian Gelston, who's just clearly the best border piper around right now. Um, and he plays, he plays Northumbria small pipes and border pipes. And they, it just sounds amazing. His instrument's amazing too. Um, it, it gets up to the second octave pretty well, but he plays in this way that isn't how like most border piping that you listen to is like Fred Morrison or any other hotshot piper like Ross Ainsley who are playing Highland pipes mm. on a border pipe tuner, right, right. rather than actually playing the music of that tradition. And so it's it's not quite as fast. Um, and I really I really love it. It sounds so much like, um, and it, it just looks so much like these 18th century tunes and I like the musicality of it. But the, the funny thing is like uh, Ian just put out a, a tune, a, a collection of tunes that he wrote. And, you know, I, I don't, generally buy new collections of music but I right, bought it that's not like, exactly your thing huh i love all of these um yeah. but again he, he wrote brand new tunes very much in an 18th century style so mm-hmm. it's like oh, it's a toss-up but uh, yeah i don't know I'm, I'm one thing too is i'm surprised at just how much music there is like i wouldn't if if i asked you know when i first wanted to play 18th century or 19th century bagpipe music i would have assumed i mean i did assume that there was like in terms of resources, I know there's probably like two books to look at right, as opposed right. to like, oh, I've got at this point my like notes page for like, so all those, all those footnotes or whatever, uh, like that show up on the show notes for a podcast episode, you know, link to the collections. Yeah. Um, and I have one big long file for season four and one big long file for season five. And both of those documents are 40 pages or more. Oh, man. Um, and like, and granted, there's links to the same collection multiple times, but sure, I've got still. like, it's like, oh, there's like a lifetime of work to just play through all of the tunes that would have been played by Pipers yeah. um, in, in this medium, which is sort of surprising. There's so much music. That's sort of why I quit um, trying to write tunes um, when I was younger. It was like, oh, there's already so many tunes to learn. Mm. <laughs> what can yeah. I, if Donald McLeod wrote so many tunes, what can I possibly hope to bring to this mm. by like writing yeah. uh, original music? But yeah, it, it's interesting to me that, like, I feel like I'm seeing a parallel in my own experience that, like, I started piping at uh, 14, so a bit or, mm-hmm. older than you did. But just, like, I'm, I've, it, for the last few years, I've been sort of, like, coming to this realization or coming to, the, like, accepting this fact that, like, as a child playing bagpipes, just like with everything else for a child, it's unlimited potential, you know? It's like, yeah. well, someday I will learn that. Someday I will do that. Someday I will have that, you know? And I'm reaching a point now where I'm, like, just accepting and being okay with the fact that, like, I will never be able to do that. And <laughs> sure. like, and yeah. so like where I was younger, it was like, it might be like, I love this person's piping and I'm going to play like them, 
you know yeah. there's a slight shift to go man that person's amazing and not have right. to tack on and i would like to learn to well, i mean i'd like to yeah. you know but you know uh, like a shift to appreciation for appreciation's sake not for a, like aspiration as well yeah yeah i think that's oh, that's good right like yeah that's totally it's good, uh, yeah. that's a healthy place to be I, yeah as a kid i wanted to be a grade one piper that was really important to me uh and then i competed once or maybe i think i competed three times like nope that is not a thing i care about yeah <laughs> like, i'm not yeah. gonna and it seemed like impossible um and i didn't yeah it seemed impossible and it's sort of funny i always wonder how much of my uh, behaviors and interest in music is like just justifying that decision not to <laughs> yeah <laughs> not to do that and i had this weird moment where um the pipe major that minnesota band that i was in in college like he and i were he was maybe a little bit better than me he was certainly better than me in, in being able to play a tune exactly the same way every time but like musicality wise we were pretty neck and neck mm -hmm. and he started competing and he started competing grade one i was like oh so like i could Oh, I should try. No, I'm still not going to do this. <laughs> like, this, isn't, this is still not a thing. I care. You know, you uh, could, but you don't really want to. It's, yeah. You, you honestly don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not, I, I've had, it, I feel bad because it's, you know, looking at, um, like, honestly, probably your podcast probably has more listeners than mine does. I don't um, know about that, man. Like, but like, I'm, I'm doing a wildly different thing. Like there's a lot of pipers in the world and they all come from this pipe band world. Like yes, that's it's true. Like, pipe band competition. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, I've, I've been around for a long time here and there, but like, I've never actually talked too much about mm. competition or it's like, what's that guy talking? It's um, not, he's not talking about MSRs. I don't need to hear it. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that's, that's, no, that's fine. But it's just interesting to me. Like, like, yeah, that's not a, that's not a realm. That's not a thing I've dabbled in or, or it hasn't been important to me. Um, I just, I sort of lost my train of thought there. Well, I, let me, um, let me pick it up while, or while you look for it. Let me just, just insert this, that like, I have wondered before, even in this conversation, like to what degree are, are, have we been seeing over the last few years, a shift that's like, it might feel like it's going to something entirely new, but does it, does it not feel kind of like the piping tradition used to be wider and bigger and more open and it kind of became restricted into this sort of regimented and maybe this is just my own experience so this is what i'm seeing right but it became slowly regimented and and militaristic and like sort of oh, yeah. sort of boxed in and now we're kind of read it feels like we're finding new things but if we look closely enough we're actually rediscovering things that right. used to be Right. I mean, instruments that was, as well as styles like the illin pipes coming back is one of the things like they almost disappeared from the earth you know yeah. Um, and yeah. Then, I mean, that's definitely definitely true. <laughs> like, do you remember that that article that uh, would you pronounce her name for me again? The one who did the album. Yeah. Yeah. Bridget Campbell. Yeah. She she was she got some attention for that awesome uh, that 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 real uh, the Chanterant guys called it a real rock and roll response when somebody had seen one of her videos small piping and they said I hope she doesn't give up I think it was serious piping you know okay, meaning yeah. meaning competitive Highland piping right? right and she said define serious piping right yeah. like are we yeah. seeing like a more of an awakening and opening up to like no let's let's explore these other these other let's, corners you know and like let's let this thing be a musical instrument yeah yeah I think, yeah um one of if, if you haven't listened to mark saul's mixolydian album um one of the tracks has like a voiceover some pipe major sort of i think pipe major major i'm not sure who it is um uh but talking about how we should really kind of think of this as an instrument that plays like it doesn't have to just be a bagpipe it can be a musical instrument or something along those mm, lines yeah um but yeah i mean that was definitely my realization in looking at donald mcdonald's stuff or angus Mackay stuff like all of this new tradition of kitchen piping is 
something that's already existed. Like that, that this was already a thing. Um, and it's, and it's clear, like, I think Highland pipes would have died out or would have certainly become less popular than what they are if it weren't for the competitions yeah. and for the military. Yeah. So there's part of it. It's like, Oh, well, we're obviously indebted to this, yeah. but if you read, um, I think Joseph Gibson, John Gibson, I can't remember his, uh, what his first name is, but he's got a couple of really awesome books about the history of, of Gaelic bagpiping. And he points out like from the day, from like day one of those bagpiping competitions, there were people that hated them that hmm. said, what yeah. are you doing? You're ruining the music. Yeah. Um, this is not how this instrument, this music is supposed to be performed. Um, and I think there's some other things uh, that I haven't read yet kind of talking about like what a recruitment tool the, the various Highland societies were in London and in Scotland to kind of drive people towards the military mm. and kind of really focusing on, you know, this militaristic use of the instrument rather than it being used to play dance tunes. Mm. And there's also this weird... I'm really struggling here to uh, hold these threads together yet, but um, there's also this interesting phenomenon where like Highland pipes are the bagpipe of the world now. Like everybody thinks bagpipe yeah. and Highland pipes, yeah. but probably the time period that I think a lot of people interested in this stuff kind of fetishized the 1740s, like before the Jacobite rebellion and mm -hmm. kind of have this idea that there was a fully formed Highland culture where everybody played bagpipes and all this stuff, which is not really accurate, but um it seems likely that in that 1740s period, there was more people playing lowland pipes than playing island pipes. Mm -hmm. Like just in terms of number of, of instruments that existed, like Keith Sanger gave a, a really interesting talk about just how much a Highland bagpipe cost in, you know, kind of the 18th century and how it's like a year's or two's wages <laughs> to like be able yeah. to do it, which is why it was so much tied to like this bardic tradition of, you know, a, a family's piper, um, you know, a wealthy family that could support a piper because it's expensive even to get the instrument from, uh, in the first place, uh, it's all, it's all quite a bit, uh, yeah, it's all, it's all kind of complicated and interesting. And, um, but I, I think thinking of bagpipes as having to be separate from it, you know, it's, it's clear that bagpipers, that Donald McDonald is copying out tunes that were being played for a hundred years before, at least in Scotland, uh, or maybe not a hundred years. Yeah. hundred years, 1730s is when David Young publishes the Drummond Castle manuscript. And you see a lot of tunes that will show up later in the Highland bagpiping collections and they're being played by fiddlers and things. So mm -hmm. like, you don't just have to play marches and stuff. Like this was all a really robust collection of music that, you know, pipers just like Gordon Duncan plays Thunderstruck, you know, um, a Highland piper in the 1740s is going to play the tune that David Young is famous for if he can, yeah. if he can do it, you know, yeah. it's, uh, pop culture at the time man i some, every once in a while i come out of one of these long rants where i'm like i have no idea where we started or it, what I, i'm talking it's, about it's holding my attention so it's bound to it's you got at least one one listener right. here man so <laughs> right. carry on because yeah. like i just right. i'm i'm hopeful and maybe it's only my own experience but i feel like looking around right now there are a lot more competitive highland pipers that i know yeah. in my immediate vicinity who also own some form of small pipes than was yeah. the case 10 years ago. Like, yeah. so I'm like, maybe we're seeing a collective shift, right? Like a yeah. turning back to this kitchen piping tradition, back to dance tunes, you know, maybe we are seeing that. Yeah. And that would be I mean, exciting. It's, it's, such, it's such good music. Like, you know, a six, eight March is awesome. A two, four March, like I love, I, I love a good two, four March to the point where I'm afraid to play them because I want to, you know, I, the 91st or 90 whatever at Modern River is like one of my favorite tunes ever that I'm just totally afraid to play because I want to always do it justice. Mm, yeah. But like, yeah, I, I love a reel and a jig. A jig, man, they're, they're good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like just playing a variety of, of music and um, 
Yeah. And it's, it's sort of weird. That was the, the big point. The, the big epiphany I had, uh, I was talking with a buddy of mine that's been a really big supporter of the podcast, and he's been in the piping scene since maybe the 80s or something, maybe even longer than that. But uh, we, we were kind of talking about how competition, what it means to people and how so many people are interested in it and realized, like, and just the, the way, like, it's pretty unique um, Highland bagpiping competition where, like, it's the same people competing to win the same prizes year after year after year after yeah year. that's true and yeah. it's like the only thing that like that's not there's not really an equivalent music tradition of that it's sports it's like it it's is. just sports yeah. it's not it's not a music competition it's a sporting competition about music um and that's you know and sports are fun people get into sports um unless you don't <laughs> so but it really helped my understanding of like oh yeah sports are really important to people just like highland bay piping competitions and, and that sort of thing but yeah 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 here locally we even use here in the western united states pipe band association we even use a service called r2 sports to manage okay. all the you know signing up for competitions and everything like that because of yeah. course that's the model that makes sense because that's that's yeah. what it is yeah yeah. Yeah. I kind of love in, in Ireland, you know, they, they have competitions and festivals and stuff where people compete, but you, you definitely get the sense that like, once you win it, once you don't compete again, like mm. it would be bad form to <laughs> do know. so. Right. You, you, I think like, I don't know. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> right. But I, I'm always kind of surprised when, you know, you hear about people competing or it's like, Oh, why didn't, why didn't Park McGovern compete? Like, Oh, he was judging and he won it before. Like, right, Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> like there isn't the same thing. Whereas like the idea of, somebody winning a, a, like the Glenfiddich or whatever that isn't like Ryan Cloud or Stuart Little or Jack Lee. It's like, oh, that's, no, it's got to be one of those guys. Like, yeah. well, well, maybe they've already won once and I don't know. Or in but some not, other cases, you know. several times, you know. Yeah, yeah right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think this, yeah, it's a, it's a different, it's a whole different thing. And like the constant creeping up of the Channer stuff. Yeah, isn't that whole, interesting? That is weird, man. Super yeah. weird. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, my wife often comments on like, it's, you know, it's just, it's an inherently weird thing to judge art, you know, to say like, we're yes. now going to compete yeah. with art. Technical difficulties. I had read some speculation from somebody or an idea that possibly part of the reason the, the Highland bagpipe is like the bagpipe is partly because there are other kinds of bagpipe that have been developed all over the world. But as the bagpipe, the Highland pipes moved out with colonialism, they yeah. started to replace what you might call indigenous bagpipes in different places in the world. And yeah. so like, as that's happening, also sort of more classical instruments are replacing the pipes in parlor music in Europe. And so like, you have these multiple factors that come together to make it. So like, what does bagpipe mean? It means the Highland bagpipe. And what, how, does right. the, how do you play that? The way the military bands do. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that a lot. Uh, my my joking interpretation of it had always been, um, like as much as we think of bagpipes as a Scottish thing, the weird reality is that Scotland was sort of the last place to get mm -hmm. bagpipes. Mm -hmm. And so when the rest of Europe was like moving on to other things, it was like, oh, it's brand new. It's just yeah. like super exciting, <laughs> brand new thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if that's uh, totally accurate either. Yeah. But uh but it, it, in timeline, I mean, it, it does sort of work out that like bagpipes sort of show up in Scotland after yeah. they've already been developed elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but yeah, I think colonialism has a huge part that like the the reality is that places where you know those those folk traditions of bagpipes had sort of died out, um, and maybe they weren't as robust. You know, there a lot of 
people's bagpipe tradition, it's a pretty pastoral thing you do when you're out with the flock. Oh, yeah, alone. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, like, you might have, I mean, like, the Italian bagpipe tradition of, like, it's so closely tied to Christmas celebrations and still being in, like, shepherd's clothing of, like, mm-hmm. coming into the town and playing your, uh, I'm going to say Zamboni, but that's not what it's called, <laughs> Zambona yeah, or whatever. Zamponia? Um, um, yeah. No, or is that the Spanish one? I think that's the Spanish one. Anyway. I think it's Zambonia. But yeah, anyway, that, that glorious giant instrument. Um, yeah, and whereas, you know, Highland piping is very much tied to aristocrats and court and wealthy folks. And there's some French music traditions that way too, but then mm. they beheaded all those folks. So <laughs> there's not quite as much of a, oh, we should have a musette here. Like, well, let's right. not do that. Maybe not that popular. <laughs> yeah, but then when, you know, the bagpipe spreads to cultures that don't have bagpipes, it's the Scottish one is what they see first. So. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that's how it kind of has supremacy, but yeah. Now, um, let me kind of, kind of shift us toward a graceful close here. Um, if you, Jeremy had yeah. only one instrument that you could play for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. what's it going to be? That's such a mean question. I know, uh, right? Speculate, <laughs> speculate the grim possibilities. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> oh, Oh, that's hard. Like I, I have to make these decisions whenever I travel, I feel like. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and lately, like every time I've gone to Scotland, I've brought Highland pipes, mm-hmm. mostly because they're easier to travel with too. Um, but I, I was kind of speculating about, in theory, I, I might be going back to do some, d- depending on how things go, I might be going to Scotland to do some research in the next year or two. And the idea of not taking an Allen pipe was like well that's not a possibility not to the point where option. i was yeah where i was like kind of speculating about just buying a new instrument that would be that would be distracting so i was, I was like i'll get a set of john swain border pipes while i'm mm. over there because they're they're sort of like the perfect hybrid between highland pipes and ellen pipes and um but yeah i, I don't know i uh oof. i it is it is clear to me that highland pipes are still my best instrument mm. um but if honest, oh man, if I only had one instrument for the rest of my life, it might be a whistle. I don't know. Interesting. I, so I, I didn't expect it to be a whistle. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I would miss the low, the leading note or whatever, the low yeah. C or the low yeah. G. Oh, I don't know, man. That's brutal. I keep on thinking about uh, during the pandemic, we started watching like Alone, uh, that, you know, the like bushcraft show where people are out in the bush and oh, stuff. Oh, right. You get yeah. to take 10 items. I'm like, well, there's no way I'm not taking a bagpipe as one of my 10 items. <laughs> right. Jeremy um, shows up to the show with, like, <laughs> oh, I only have six items that aren't bagpipes. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I brought a match and six different types of bagpipes. Right. So we'll be fine. Awesome. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, recently I did. Uh, because Ellen pipes are sort of new to me and they're more exciting to me. I, yeah. I play. A, I tend to play more of them. I mean, they're not new to me. I've played them almost exactly as long, but um, having this new chanter really helps. And uh, I've, I've spent less time seriously on it than I did Highland pipes. And so my podcast tends to lean more towards Ellen piping than Highland piping. Um, but I'm a way better Highland piper than I'm Ellen piper. So it's yeah. a, a couple. I get self-conscious about not having enough Highland piping on, especially because. I think most of my listeners are Highland Pipers that are interested mm. in dabbling and other stuff. Um, but yeah, I released an episode not too long ago that was a bunch of tunes from uh, a 1780 collection or, or later, a guy named James Aird, which is not a bagpipe collection, but there's a bunch of tunes in there that seem to be bagpipe tunes. And so I played through a bunch of those, including one that Breacha Campbell does. It's the, I have an episode where I play a track from her and it's because she does the same, the same tune. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
and yeah, so it was like mostly Highland piping and, and somebody that yeah, I talked with quite a bit. They're like, don't take this wrong, but you're really pretty good. Uh, like you've gotten a lot better. It's like, yeah, it's just, it's only because I didn't torture anybody with me trying to figure out how to play Illin pipes. It's like mm. just me playing Highland pipes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think I'd have a hard time. I'd have a hard time not having Highland pipes in my life. Um, but I love how long when an Illin pipe read is working, it lasts. So yeah, I guess. But that's why longevity wise, let's, I'm, I'm just making all kinds of caveats. That's why I whistle because a whistle doesn't uh, go mm. out of tune or break or so well, it does. Break. Right. So it like a, like a solid titanium whistle and yeah. adamantium yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whistle if mm-hmm. possible. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Technical difficulties. But okay, so we're back together then. We are recording, so maybe we can do this live then. Um, let's yeah. go right for it in case this happens again. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so, so Jeremy, you've got your Illin pipes. Your grandma said to you, you know, when I die, you know, you can have a set of these pipes, and that that happened, right? Yeah, yeah. She passed away, and that's when I got the full set of Illin pipes. And, and of course, I'm not in any way trying to like like that's sad and that's hard, and I am sorry for that. But I'm glad you have the pipes. And yeah, you mentioned yeah. in one of the episodes that you'd written a P book for them. Um, anything yeah, else you want to say yeah. about it or them? Yeah, it was sort of it was sort of cool. The um, I mean, whatever death is a natural part of everything, but it still sort of sucks. Uh, and then you get these you get these things that are really neat. So when my grandma passed away, we went through her safe, and she had kept these love letters from uh, when she and you know my my grandfather were right before they were married and kind of living apart and it's just the cheesiest stuff in the world it's all just oh i love you darling sweetheart darling mm-hmm. um and and we only have like his perspective like mm-hmm. hers you know she didn't keep her her set of letters obviously uh, but it was really sweet you know he passed away a couple of years before her and it was really um it was just a great way to mourn somebody to find these letters that she had clearly been cherishing and you know, kept close to her over, you know, three moves after he died. Um, I just always thought that she was kind of revisiting these letters, thinking about, you know, passing away and being together with him too. Um, but yeah, so I, I wrote a tune, um, wrote a tune for them called John and Mary Blair Salute or something. It was a, it's a Peabrock and it's uh, maybe the second Peabrock I wrote. And there's some things that uh, yeah, I, I like it. It's a good tune. And, so <laughs> a, I, and I don't, I don't mean tune. to dig too much into it, but is so then is this the tune that you, you wrote this tune in the wake of their passing, um, having reviewed these letters, or was it you wrote it before, like after your grandfather passed away and before your grandmother passed away? What was sort of the context from which this tune was born? Yeah, no, I think I wrote it. Uh, I wrote it after she had passed away, yeah. and it wasn't like an immediate aftermath of these letters, but the letters definitely informed the playing of it. Um, Part of, part of the reason I wanted to start writing Peabrook is I was frustrated with um, people insisting that it had to be done a certain way. Mm. Um, and I was like, well, if I am not allowed to play Peabrook in a way that I want to, unless I write it, I guess that's what I'll have to do. Mm. Um, and then also just because, while I didn't feel like I could contribute anything to the hornpipe jig writing community, um, Peabrooks are awesome and feel like a great way to like commemorate or you know record a thing. Yeah. Um, and remember it and so I did it and so there's there's part of the Peabrook that has like um, like where it's it's basically an A, A, B setup you know where you played the A part twice and the B part and then A, B, B and then A, B but there's always part of it that doesn't quite connect right like that's sort of the 
the outer loop thing um and that's that was because of the letters like mm-hmm. realizing that they had this part of the relationship where they were separated from one another and really i mean they would again um he was working at a printer shop many miles away from wichita where she was living but you know that was in 1940 i think um but you know as soon as um Pearl Harbor happened. He he enlisted, and so they wound up being away from one another for for a while too. But but yeah, you know, growing up as a as a kid in there, like visiting them and being around them, like they were just they acted like newlyweds, like mm. these people that had been together since the forties, um, but they were still like just so painfully, obviously, in love with one another, and um, kind of this flirtatious nature that was just. It was just so great to see. It was such a great example of like what love can be and, and should be. Um, yeah. So so anyway. So yeah, this is the tune uh, that I wrote for them. And you know, the other part of that, um, you know, so grandma was two things. It was you can buy a set of villain pipes when I die, and you can go to Scotland when I die. Mm. And so I kind of played every time I'm in Scotland. I always think of her and, and play the tune around quite a bit. And um, but the other thing I love about playing Peabrook that you wrote is, uh, like, nobody can accuse you of doing it wrong. And so every time I make a mistake, yeah. I'm like, no, 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 that's just representing them being apart from one another. There you, you know? go. Yeah. <laughs> How difficult that was. But, it's the messiness of life. <laughs> yeah. But it was, you know, it was my, when my brother got married, um, I was like, oh, I should write a tune for them. And then just, like, having to write a tune on demand that's worthy of a thing. Mm-hmm. It's pretty hard, yeah. uh, and so I, I came close, and then I was like, "Wait, I've already got a tune. I'll just play this." So it's kind of, it's my go-to like family Peabrook. But as the only like bagpiper in the family, whenever like an aunt or an uncle dies, I'm like, "Well, you know, we do have a family Peabrook, or I could play Amazing mm-hmm. Grace." Mm-hmm. It's always Amazing Grace, but yeah. uh, <laughs> but in my head, this is always the tune that we should be playing. January 23rd, 1940. Dearest Mary Louise, well, I got the job. Now it's me that's gone. Turn about fair play. I got out here at about two, I talked to the boss, and he told me he had two other fellows to see yet, but I got it. He told me where I could get a room, I didn't like it. So I went and looked for myself. Got one for two dollars a week. The job don't pay very much, but I think I can get by. It pays seven fifty a week. I get off Saturday noon, I'm coming right home. Not as if it isn't storming. I sure hope it isn't storming. It sure is lonesome out here. I sure do miss you, darling. I'll see you Saturday night. Sure seems a long way off. Now you be real good and don't make eyes at any other boys. There's a young lady working here. Well, don't get too excited. It's the boss's wife. I guess I fooled you. Goodbye, darling. Take good care of yourself. Tell everybody hello for me. Goodbye. Lots of love, Johnny. March 25th. Hello, sweetheart. I'm back again. I don't know much to say, but I thought I'd just write a line to tell you that I love you. You are the most precious thing ever. I love you so much. Hello, precious. I'm back again. Doggone still love you. I love you an awful lot. Boy, are your cookies good. I love you so much, precious. Honey, don't start planning about getting married in the fall. Maybe things will churn our way pretty soon. I sure hope so. April 30th. Dearest sweetheart, darling. Gosh, sweetheart, I miss you. I love you so much. I sure hope this week goes fast. I'm awful tired of this single life. 
Love you so much, Precious. I slept pretty good last night. I don't think the people who owns the house will be Snoopy. She asked me for permission to come in and hang some curtains. I sure hope they stay that way. Gosh, sweetheart, I love you so much. I'm going to get the marriage license tomorrow noon. Boy, I'll be glad when we are married. Darn it, honey. If I had to do over, I would insist that we got married last Sunday. This waiting a week is terrible. But I hope you don't have time to get lonesome. I'm pretty sure you won't. I love you, precious. I'm going down to the post office soon to have my address changed. Boy, I want those letters. May 1st. Hello, precious. I'm back again. Just got through eating supper. I have to go back to work at 7. I haven't much time to write. I love you, sweetheart. I don't suppose you will have time to read all the letter, but maybe you will get the main points. Goodbye, precious. I'll see you Saturday. Your loving sweetheart. I love you. XXXXX. Johnny. XXXX.